everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. Now we're going to bring you the story of a mysterious cube of uranium. The cube turned up one day in a suburb of Washington, D.C., after it had been lost for more than half a century. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has the story of the uranium and its dark past. Timothy Koth is a physicist at the University of Maryland and also a huge collector of nuclear memorabilia. His office is crammed with radioactive relics, pieces of melted glass from beneath the test of the world's first nuclear weapon, old watches with glowing dials. And this would be in somebody's pocket. A few years back, he was out for a hot, sweaty August jog when his cell phone rang. It was a friend of his. They said, I need you to meet me as soon as possible. So Tim told this person where he was, and the voice on the other end says, Great, there's a parking lot nearby. Head over. About 20 minutes later, we got together and got out of the car, opened the trunk of the car. and There in the trunk was a little satchel, like a lunch satchel. And inside, wrapped in paper towels, was this weird-looking metal cube. Charcoal black with little notches on the side. And it was really, really heavy for its size. I looked at my friend and I said, uh, do you know what that is? And they responded to me and said, well, I I think so. Do you know what it is? (laughs) It turned out they didn't need to guess because wrapped around the cube was a piece of paper. Sort of like a ransom note around a a rock that would be thrown through somebody's window. Uh, And it says, uh, gift of Nininger, a piece of uranium from the reactor Hitler tried to build. That's right. This was a cube of pure uranium made by the Nazis. During World War II, the Nazis had a nuclear program, 
Actually, in the run-up to the war, the Germans were leaders in nuclear technology. Nuclear fission was discovered in Berlin in late 1938. Alex Wellerstein is a historian of science at the Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. They were the first team of people who figured out how to split the atom and figured out that when you split the atom, a lot of energy was going to be released. That basic idea of splitting atoms to release energy is what's at the heart of all of today's nuclear power plants and all the world's nuclear weapons. But back during the war, this was all theoretical. To find out how it could work, the Germans devised a strange-looking experiment. Scientists strung together hundreds of cubes of uranium with aircraft cables and suspended them. Kind of like a, a very strange modernist chandelier of cubes in a tank of special water. It was called the B-8 reactor. The Germans never quite got it to work. They were still experimenting with it when the Allied invasion began. Quickly, the scientists disassembled the reactor and buried the cubes in a field. But the Allies figured out what the researchers were up to. They find some of these scientists, they tell them where the stuff is, and they go get it. So they dig up this uranium. Allied troops box up 659 uranium cubes and send them back to America. And then, well, Wellerstein says the trail goes cold. The records on this kind of stuff are less good than you'd expect, given, given what they are. Now, the news the U.S. government has misplaced hundreds of cubes of Nazi uranium might seem highly alarming. I should say the cubes are made of natural uranium, and that means they're not particularly radioactive or valuable. And Wellerstein points out that the Nazi program never even got close to building a bomb. It's really a footnote in the history books. But Tim Koth doesn't see it as a footnote because the Americans, they thought the Nazis were racing towards a bomb, and that's a big part of why they rushed ahead with the Manhattan Project and built the world's first nuclear weapon. This was the end result of $2 billion spent on research and production, of years of feverish labor to harness atomic power ahead of the enemy. It was the fear of little black cubes like the one on his desk that launched the nuclear age. This cube weighs five pounds, but it's one of the few remaining physical relics representing why the United States generated the Manhattan Project and everything that came out of that afterwards. Nuclear weapons and nuclear power, the Cold War, the threat of this nuclear hostage that our planet is held in, it's all motivated by this effort that produced just these 600 and some cubes. Which is why Koth is determined to find out what happened to the cubes, starting with the one from the trunk of the car. And a big clue was in that note wrapped around it. Remember, it's a piece of uranium from the reactor Hitler tried to build, but there was another clue, the words, Gift of Nininger. Literally just a few weeks later, I was at a, uh, a flea market and was looking through a box of used science books and came across this book called Minerals for Atomic Energy by Robert D. Nininger. What kind of flea markets do you go to? Oh, <laughs> It turns out Robert Nininger was in charge of inventory for part of the Manhattan Project. It's likely he oversaw the arrival of the Nazi cubes from Europe. Mimi Hebert, a postdoc working with Koth, says it's possible Nininger or one of his colleagues handed out a few cubes as souvenirs. Sounds nuts to us, but, you know, physicists back in the 1940s, it wouldn't have been quite as alarming. Nininger kept his cube until he died. It was found in his estate and passed to Koth's friend, who gave it to him. 
There are a few other cubes out there. One was donated to Harvard by a physicist who worked on the original mission to recover the uranium. The Smithsonian has one. The Smithsonian's cube was found in a drawer and was donated by the person who found it. What other? There's the one that was found in the creek in Germany. It's believed famous German physicist Werner Heisenberg tossed it into a local river as he fled. It was later recovered. That's now in a museum. There was one that wound up at Pacific Northwest National Lab that nobody's quite sure how it got there. Which leaves around 650 cubes completely unaccounted for. They genuinely would not shock me at all if they're sitting in a box somewhere. And just no one's wanted to move this really heavy box in the past 70 years. Um, That is probably the most likely (laughs) outcome right now. So if you happen to be working in a lab or maybe a big government facility and you spot a really heavy box in the basement, take a peek inside and give Tim and Mimi a call. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. What is everybody in Europe worried about now? Why genetic annihilation? All these people from Syria coming up in here. Say no to mass immigration. That was the message on billboards that were put up across Canada last week. The billboards featured a smiling photo of Maxime Bernier and the logo of his party, the People's Party of Canada. And critics were swift to respond. Petitions were started, politicians spoke out, and outrage grew on social media. On Sunday, the company that owns the billboards said they were coming down in response to the criticism, much to the chagrin of Maxime Bernier. He tweeted that his message about immigration is, quote, only controversial for the totalitarian leftist mob who want to censor it, end quote. While the wording of the billboards might be controversial to more than just the leftist mob, Polls suggest that immigration is indeed an issue that Canadians want on the election agenda. A Leger poll in February had almost half of respondents saying they believe Canada welcomes too many immigrants and refugees. Another poll in June reported that 60% of respondents think the government should prioritize limiting immigration levels. Two people join me now to talk more about the issue of immigration in the context of the upcoming election. Amira El-Hawabi is a human rights advocate and serves on the board of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. She's in our Ottawa studio, and Lise Ravary writes for the Montreal Gazette and is a broadcaster and columnist with Kojiko Media. She is in Apple Hill, Ontario. Hello to you both. Hello. Good morning. Amira, we'll start with you. What was your reaction when you first heard about these billboards um, and the message that went across them saying... Say no to mass immigration. Well, I was sickened, um, but not surprised. Uh, This is pure dog whistle politics, Matt. It's an effort really to signal to voters who hold sort of anti-immigrant views that the People's Party of Canada should be their choice. Um, And so, you know, seeing this kind of American-style politics, the large divisive billboards, um, you know, it was only a matter of time that we would see this here in Canada. Um, What's giving me hope, though, at this point is the strong negative reaction to it. When you say that they're um, signaling dog whistle politics, what does that mean? And what particularly in that message, say no Mm -hmm. to mass immigration, uh, where's the dog whistle there? Well, there is the idea that mass immigration uh, is translating to mean there are too many immigrants in Canada, that immigration is a problem to be solved. And this is absolutely contrary to the truth. The reality is immigration is key to the success of this country. This is not just the opinion of immigrants. This is the opinion of those who look at economic policy, who look at job creation in this country, who look at um, you know how well our communities are doing. And what everybody says right across the board is, in fact, 
Canada needs to continue the strong tradition of bringing immigrants to this nation. We need to continue to build economic prosperity. Um, you know, in a matter of years, the boomer population is going to be retiring. Right. Who are who's going to support them? Who's going to continue to pay, work hard, pay taxes, um, and ensure that we have the schools, the health care, the roads, all of these, uh, you know, services that we receive um, won't be able to go on if we don't continue to bring in immigration and actually to allow immigration levels to rise. Do you believe that the message is a racist one? Well, I mean, absolutely it is. It is absolutely signaling that uh, immigrants are a problem. Um, And I think what's really important is that, you know, Mr. Bernier can claim uh, that this, you know, this is him wanting to have a debate. But what it actually is, it's him signaling to those people who, again, are holding these views um, that he that he is the one who's going to, quote unquote, save Canada from, you know, people who are not integrating, people who don't adopt Western values. This is all code words that he's been using. It's his narrative. And what the rest of us have to do is say, you know what, that's not what Canada is about. Canada is about an inclusive place that has actually succeeded right. by bringing in people from all around the world. I want to get to Lee's in a moment, but he said that these billboards aren't controversial. He didn't put them up, but but he has said that the message is one that, that uh, squares with what he's been saying. But he says it's not controversial because you know, I mentioned this poll, this Leger poll in June, 63% of respondents say that they want Canada to limit its immigration numbers. Is it possible that if not what's on the billboard, then his overall message reflects what a majority or at least a large minority of Canadians are saying. Well, I think what we have to understand here in Canada is that there have been so many movements just in the past few years that are creating and whipping up fear and xenophobia against various communities, whether it's immigrants, whether it's Muslims, whether it's Jewish communities, black communities. What we're seeing is that those who are seen as different are more and more being painted as a threat. And, you know, we cannot ignore the fact that there's a racist president in the White House right now and all of the the fear and xenophobia that he has been whipping up about immigration has certainly had an impact here in Canada. And so you believe that, that there's a direct line between that and the fact that 63% of the people uh, who might be polled say that they want um, a, a limit to immigration numbers? I think there is a climate of fear and xenophobia about immigration and about diverse communities. Mm. And certainly, you know, I can't only look to the U.S. I have to look at the previous um, election in 2015 when Mr. Harper uh, made the niqab, you know, a face veil that only a very few uh, number of women wear in this country. He made it one of the central election issues uh, in 2015. Again, whipping up fear, the idea that, you know, those who are coming to Canada are unable to integrate and to adopt Western values, when on the contrary, people who come here are wanting everything that we all want, which is to raise our families in safe, prosperous communities and contribute positively. Lise Reverie, you've been listening. Um, do you think yes. that the message on the billboards was a racist message? Well, I think it was a, a disgusting message. Uh, first, of all, first of all, it was a lie. I mean, you know, item number one, because there is no mass migration to ca- immigration to Canada. It is not taking place. And if you look at the government's uh, proposals for the next, you know, little while, you look at the numbers, I mean, you're talking about 350,000 people a year. Um, if you compare that, say, with the – and it's not exactly the same thing, but it's just for the sake of numbers. Mm. If you compare that to the German crisis when, when the, uh, the, the refugees and the, the migrants started happening and, and Germany took in a million, uh, I mean, you, we are not nowhere near that situation. So Monsieur Bernier is, yes, trying to whip up something ugly. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he, he certainly succeeded in getting us to talk about Do it. Do you think the billboard should have been taken down? No, of course not. Why? Uh, I mean, as long as a billboard advertising uh, is, is, uh, is, you know, within the limits of the law, uh, I don't see under what... You know, pretense, we could say, take it down. To me, it's censorship. He's allowed to think what he thinks. He's allowed to say it to people. He's you allowed you, to you, you yourself described it as ugly. You said he's whipping up something. That's not, yeah, that's not, that's not enough know, that's to take just, the billboard down. First of all, he's a two-bit player in the, in the uh, uh, election campaign. So let's not give him the importance that he doesn't have. Of course, those billboards made people talk about him, and that's probably what they wanted. But at the same time, to come out and say, we got to censor this and take him down, to me, that's uh, uh, the, the remedy is worse than, than the disease. Smoke over the rainforest. In the tropical rainforest of Brazil, the Amazon, fire lights glow in the twilight and smoke rolls over canopies of green that have stood for centuries. The fires are set by farmers, many of whom hunger for farmland ripped from the rainforest. Political leaders, echoing their class masters in El Norte, make light of climate change as little more than a hoax. But the deep green lungs of the planet are burning. Several fires set a day, eats of the rainforest, which has now become a smoke forest, soon to be grasslands and then farmland. The profit motive is killing Mother Earth. And as an individual becomes addicted to corporate tobacco, so too does modern man become addicted to money as both burn the lungs of life into bitter ash. There will come a time when the lungs of the living will burn in search of sweet oxygen. But the scarred, battered, poisoned, barren earth will no longer answer. The earth, so vast, so capacious, will be as ill as humanity, choking on poison. If this be civilization, bring me the wildness of the forest from imprisoned nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Alabama's Republican Governor Kay Ivey is apologizing for wearing blackface as part of a skit when she was a college student. It happened 50 years ago when Ivey was at Auburn University, but today that incident is provoking calls for her to resign. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports. Reportedly, there are no pictures of Governor Kay Ivey wearing blackface. The evidence that it happened came in the form of a 1967 radio interview during which her then-fiancé, Ben LaRavia, describes her appearance. As I look at my fiancé across the room, I can see her that night. She had on a, a pair of blue coveralls, and she had put some black paint all over her face, and she was, uh, we were acting out this skit called Cigar Butts. LaRavia then says that during the skit, 
Ivy crawled on the floor pretending to look for cigar butts. Later in the interview, when Ivy's asked to react to LaRavia's description, she laughingly says, Well, that was just my role for the evening. But Ivy wasn't laughing in a video she released on Thursday, in which she apologized for her participation in the skit, which she calls deeply regrettable. I will do all I can going forward to help show the nation that the Alabama of today is a far cry from the Alabama of the 1960s. We have come a long way. Ivy has said that she doesn't remember the incident, but isn't disputing what LaRavia said in the interview. There have been messages of support from Republicans and Democrats, but there have also been calls for Ivy to resign. Democrat Wandelin Gavan is a state representative from Birmingham. I think that my colleagues in the House, some of them in the House and the Senate, black and white, are some of the biggest hypocrites I've ever seen in my life, Republican and Democrat. She says her colleagues don't want to risk the political consequences that come with denouncing the governor. And it bothers her that some of them have excused Ivy's actions because they happened over 50 years ago. I think about the 60s. I think about the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think about the death of uh, President John F. Kennedy, uh, Senator Robert Kennedy. Um, I think about the death of Malcolm X. I think about the death of all of those individuals who fought for injustice and for justice for all. And when asked if the protests in the state will force Ivy to resign, Gavan says that she doesn't believe so. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery. I'm here this morning because I want to apologize not only to my co-anchor, Jason, but to our entire community. I said something yesterday that was inconsiderate, it was inappropriate, and I hurt people. And I want you to know I understand how much I hurt you out there and how much I hurt you. I love you so much, and you have been one of my best friends for the past year and a half, and I would never do anything on purpose to hurt you. And I love our community, and I want you all to know, from the bottom of my heart, I apologize for what I said. I know it was wrong, and I am so sorry. Well, Alex, thank you very much, and, and I, I do accept your apology, and I, I do appreciate your apology. Um, I want to let everybody out there know that Alex... Um, is one of my best friends. I mean, we do what we do here, and, and, you know, it's not as if we see each other here and then we leave and we go home. We talk every day, or almost every other day. Um, I've told you things. I, I've, I've shared things with you as a friend, and I, I do appreciate you, and I do love you. Um, all that being said, uh, and Alex would be the first to admit to this to you, what she said yesterday was wrong. Um, it cut deep for me, and it cut deep for... A lot of you in the community, I've heard the, the phone calls and I've heard the Facebook messages. 
as well. And, and, and I guess coming out of this, I want this uh, to be a teachable moment. And that, that lesson here is that words, words matter. There's no doubt about that. Um, changing demographics here in this country, the demographics are changing. We're becoming a more diverse country. And there's no excuse. We have to understand uh, the stereotypes. We have to understand uh, each other's backgrounds and the words uh, that hurt, the words that cut deep. And we have to find a way to replace those words with love and words of affirmation um, as well. Um, you know, what we do here as broadcasters, uh, we use words. Words are the, the tools of our trade. Much like a, you know, a plumber would use a wrench or a doctor would use a scalpel, we use words. And, and our goal and what we need to do is use those words not, not to hurt and not to divide, uh, but to build a more perfect union. And uh, this is going to be a journey for us. We're learning things here. And uh, we at KOCO5 hope that you join us along on this journey. Thank you guys very much. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me, and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. 24 years ago, a St. Louis jury found Lamar Johnson guilty of murder. He's been serving a prison sentence ever since. But in July, the office of circuit attorney Kim Gardner dropped a bombshell. It said Johnson was actually innocent, and it asked for a new trial. Last week, St. Louis Circuit Court Judge Elizabeth Hogan denied that request. She didn't look at the merits, only the timing. Gardner's office, she said, was 24 years too late. Joining us by phone to discuss this remarkable turn of events is Trisha Bushnell, director of the Midwest Innocence Project. Do you have a question or comment about Lamar Johnson's case? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Trisha Bushnell, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So to a layman, Judge Hogan's ruling last week seems incredible. Can a man be held in prison indefinitely just because the timing is bad? I mean, I think that's the same question that we all have as well. Certainly, um, there's no discussion about his innocence. There's no discussion about the facts. Uh, simply an argument that he's too late. We obviously don't believe that's what the law says. We think that the, and uh, we know that the law makes uh, significant lenient things for people who are innocent because it cares about fairness. It should be caring about fairness and equity and exactly what we have here is that there's an innocent man in prison. So Johnson was a drug dealer and there was a witness who put him at the scene. But what have we since learned about that witness's testimony? So the sole eyewitness in this case, I mean, his testimony was always incredible, even at the time of trial, but even what we know now. Um, so this was a shooting that happened at night where two perpetrators came down uh, wearing ski masks, so their faces could never be seen. Um, this, the, the surviving individual, it was a shooting, one uh, person died, the other person survived, and he identified um, Lamar. But what we now know, he's, he's recanted that identification, and what we know is that he was actually receiving payments in exchange for that identification that were never disclosed, and that those payments were actually sitting there in the circuit attorney's files, which is one of the things that she found when she made this determination that he was innocent. And so these kind of payments, they are paid to witnesses and informants sometimes, but they are absolutely things that, that need to be disclosed in court. Is that the issue there? Absolutely. So he was paid out of the Victims Restitution Fund, and certainly he was a victim in that he 
was one of the two people on the porch that was shot at you know, when the other individual, Marcus Boyd, was killed. But that doesn't keep the state, that doesn't give the state permission to hide when payment to the key eyewitness, right, the only piece of evidence uh, solely to, to link Lamar to the crime. To keep that evidence away, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter that he was a victim or not. That was exculpatory information that needed to be provided to the defense, and it was not. And he's since said that he doesn't know who shot, um, who shot him or that there was somebody else that did it? He says that he has no idea who it was, and the reality is he could never have known who it was. Mm-hmm. It was nighttime. These individuals were wearing ski masks. He, he could never have made an identification. And in fact, he didn't make an identification originally. It wasn't until uh, there was a discussion made about these payments that he was able to go in and suddenly identify Lamar Johnson. That's some interesting timing. Um, and, and yet this all does come after Lamar Johnson exhausted his appeals. On the other hand, you've got no fewer than 43 prosecuting attorneys who filed an amicus brief siding with your client. What are they saying here about the timing issue? Well, what they are pointing out is that prosecutors have an obligation to do justice, right? It's not simply to get convictions. And that they themselves, working in other organizations that have these conviction integrity units, are doing exactly that, going and finding when there is an injustice and trying to correct it. It doesn't make a difference that it's 24 years later that you're correcting it. And also, I don't think it would be simple enough to say that Mr. Johnson exhausted his appeal. Certainly, he applied for appeals over and over and over again. But he never had an evidentiary hearing on those appeals. The court never took the time to give him process to hear the evidence of the innocence that he was trying to present. So to simply say it's too late, he's never had the process at all. That's interesting. Um, I know that the judge in this case asked the state attorney general to get involved. It's a pretty complicated matter there. But just give us a quick um, um, overview. What is he doing in this case? Uh, so, yes, so the, the circuit attorney represents the state in cases, right, that are within her jurisdiction. Um, and despite that, the judge appointed the attorney general to also represent the state while noting that the circuit attorney was still on. Uh, in that briefing, the attorney general also said that it believes neither the court has the authority or ability to grant relief to Lamar um, and also that it was too late. But again, makes no comment and no discussion about the evidence that there is an innocent man sitting there in prison. We did get a statement from Attorney General Eric Schmidt. We asked if his office wanted to be on the show, and they did politely decline. However, um, they asked us to read this statement. Reviewing convictions and ensuring justice is done is is an important part of our justice system. There are laws and Supreme Court rules in place precisely to ensure the integrity of that justice system. Efforts to avoid, subvert, or remove those laws and rules do more harm than good to the administration of justice. Such efforts can sometimes have the consequences of undermining the very due process to which criminal defendants are entitled. The applicable laws and Supreme Court rules provide for an orderly, established legal process for Mr. Johnson to pursue his claim of newly discovered evidence. His lawyers are well-versed in that procedure, and Mr. Johnson, assisted by his lawyers, has pursued that process before. In this case, Mr. Johnson's lawyers and the circuit attorney's office attempted to avoid those established procedures. Additionally, this is an issue that deals exclusively with jurisdiction and not questions of innocence or guilt. The court appointed the attorney general's office to protect the rule of law and the integrity of our justice system and correctly decided that Mr. Johnson and the circuit attorney needed to pursue the correct procedure. Trisha Bushnell, any sort of quick response to that, um, that statement there? Well, certainly. So as a first matter, the Midwest Innocence Project representing Mr. Johnson has never filed anything before. So that just as a, as a fact is, is incorrect. But never in this case, the, you mean? No, no, not okay. in, on behalf of Mr. Johnson. Yes. Um, but 
certainly what isn't addressed at all is what is the circuit attorney's ability and process and procedure to correct this injustice. And if the attorney general believes there is a process for her to do that, to meet her duty, he has yet to articulate that. Uh, to say that innocence plays no role actually is to just deny United States Supreme Court precedent and Missouri Supreme Court precedent about the absolute role that innocence serves about uh, how procedure must give way to equity and justice. So, you know, certainly he may he may say that there is some issue to be held, but I, I cannot see how uh, the rule of law would be undermined by freeing an innocent man from prison. That's Trisha Bushnell of the Midwest Innocence Project. We are also joined today in studio by two guests, Mike Jarvis and Jenny Schrappen. For years, both have supported Lamar Johnson through letters and ultimately with face-to-face meetings. Uh, Mike Jarvis, Jenny Schrappen, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Jenny Schrappen, you first Mm -hmm. got involved with this. Tell us how Lamar Johnson even got on your radar. Well, I was approached by my deacon at my church, and he asked if I would be interested in writing to a young man in prison. Um, Would I? And I said, certainly. And I began writing Lamar a long time ago, maybe a little over 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you started writing someone that you'd never met, didn't know personally. Um, What did you end up learning about him from these letters? Oh, from his letters, I, I could sense how intelligent he was by the way he wrote, and just his handwriting, his penmanship was just utterly amazing. I had taught school. I do. I, I was a retired teacher. I am now, rather. But I mean, I I know how important that is, and that that amazed me. And and just his the way he would write very meaningful letters and shared what was going on in his life or had, but not too much. And it was easy. He was easy to correspond with. Mm-hmm. Mike Jarvis, you ended up getting involved through your co-parishioner, um, Ginny. How did that happen? Well, um, I was on the parish council at the time, um, and uh, Christian Service was the committee I was involved with. And uh, I, I knew Jenny from coming to Mary Mother to church, and, and I could tell how involved she was and how incredibly uh, motivated she was to get involved with social justice issues. And she talked about Lamar, and uh, and she said, you know, I want to go visit, but I can't really get anybody to go with me. And I thought, well, <laughs> I can go with you. So so we planned on going, and um, and we went. And I met Lamar, and I got the same uh, impression from him that Jenny did. And, you know, it, it wasn't about his innocence right away. He just connected as a good man, and we could see that. And as time went on, obviously we got more involved in the innocence part of it. But uh, it, it was just so nourishing seeing this man stay true to his faith, especially as uh, time went on and uh, and became, you know, just a, a wonderful relationship. We uh, we care very dearly for him. So Jenny started writing him about 21 years ago. I understand you got involved about eight years ago. Yeah, somewhere okay. around so in these there. are both long-standing relationships here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Mike, you ended up becoming one of his connections to the outside world. How were you <laughs> able to help him with this case as he's trying to prove his innocence? Well, there was um, some information that he said he we could get try to get through the Sunshine Law, and uh, and I really knew very little about that process. And uh, he said, told me what to do, walked me through, it, and he said, that's probably going to cost a few bucks. And, and I said, okay, as long as I don't have to take out a loan, we'll do this. And um, so so we got a hold of the people that uh, in the research department, and 
just so happened that this guy happened to know my name and one of my cousins. And oh, That's so St. Louis. Yeah, yeah, isn't it, though? So uh, I said, well, listen, can you try to find this stuff? He says, well, it's in the basement in the archives. And he says, I guess I can try. I said, just please make an effort. And, and sure enough, he did. Got all the information that was lingering down there, you know, just waiting to be surfaced. And Got it to Lamar, and and that's when things really started jumping. Yeah, Trisha Bush. Now, did uh, <clears throat> was what Lamar was able to find out about his own case was that critical in starting this process? Uh, I mean, certainly, like like many innocent folks, the information that uh, the defendants bring is helpful for us to begin our process. And and Lamar, you know, he's been working really hard, like any innocent person would, to try to prove his innocence. So. All of this information was critical, but quite frankly, none of it will ever be as critical as what the circuit attorney was able to find because that was evidence that was not disclosed. That's a good point. Um, Jenny, having been his friend for years, you must have been so excited in July when the circuit attorney comes out and says, this man is actually innocent. What was your reaction to that news? Uh, I was ecstatic. I couldn't believe it was actually happening because mm-hmm. this is what we've been waiting for for years and years and years and years. And, and then I was, could be a part of it. And you must have thought at that point that it was going to be a, only a short matter of time before you would see him on the other side. Exactly. What went through your mind as this next step happened where, hey, he's still stuck in prison? Well, not being a lawyer, um, it was a little more than I, uh, a lot of it I didn't understand, I suppose. And and even though I, I do understand a lot more of it now, I I feel race is a big thing with this, with his life, that the sentence alone and because he is a black man he is, is a man of color and he was poor is poor and was poor and couldn't af- afford so he had public defenders and i just don't think this would have happened Trisha Bushnell, how common is that in these cases where you end up looking at them years after the fact where a person's poverty or issues even of race end up getting them into a situation like this I mean, it's absolutely common. It's it's tragically common, especially here in Missouri, where our public defender is vastly underfunded and under resources. What it means is that if you are poor, finding justice is significantly harder, if even possible. And and race is always a factor. It's a it's you know quite frankly what we would argue one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions. We know the vast majority of people who are exonerated are black men, and there's a reason for that. Um, and and it's our job to fix that and to prevent that from happening. So after this big setback last week, um, have either of you, um, uh, Mike Jarvis or Jenny Trappin, have you been able to talk to Lamar? Yes. Um, we've been, we, I've been able to talk to him a few times, and I actually went to see him a week, two weeks ago. Okay. And what's his state of mind at this point? Is he livid at the justice system? Um, amazingly, he is a very mild-tempered, genuinely sweet person. And even though you would think he would be, and I think I would be. 24 years in exactly. prison, and yeah. still it goes but on. He, yeah. he, he just always mm-hmm. will say, I think it's, it's, he also said, I don't think it's really about me. He said, I think it's beyond that now. It's these mm-hmm. different areas of concern. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. And I will share with you, Sarah, that um, Lamarck actually called us last night. My wife, Helen, and I are, are the ones that visit with Jenny, and um, he started off with saying, you know, I said, how you doing? He said, I'm just kind of in a funk. And I said, I 
understand. I mean, you know, all the information now is out there, which is all he ever really wanted was to just get the truth out there. And he would be willing to be decided on, defined by the truth, more than willing. And and uh, we had some conversation and talked a little bit about his faith, which I think is really the thing that is is holding him together right now. I mean, he's he's realizing that, you know, it's a system corrupt though it may be, uh, disjointed though it may be, it's still the system in place. And he's going to put faith in the MIP, which has done an incredible job for him. That's the Midwest Innocence Project yes, that Trisha is. works for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to know he's hanging in there. Trisha Bushnell, we have time for just one last question, and that is, what is your next legal step here? Uh, well, certainly everyone is will be appealing this decision and moving forward. It, it just cannot be the law that a prosecutor cannot correct an injustice, which is their ethical and constitutional duty to do. And, and it just can't be that we, as, as you said, as lay people, as anyone, are okay with the evidence being there and an innocent man still sitting there anyway. Trisha Bushnell of the Midwest Innocence Project, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Mike Jarvis and Jenny Strappen, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Some homeowners might have a Pavlovian reaction to that sound. For the uninitiated, that's the chime of the popular ring doorbell that not only alerts you to a visitor at your door, but also captures via video everything in its vicinity. Since 2013, the company's line of internet-connected ringers has caught on camera everything from package thieves to stray animals, and that triggers an alert to the homeowner's smartphone and a live-streamed video. Over the years, the company has teamed up with police agencies across the country to allow access to certain videos. But up until recently, it wasn't clear just how many departments were involved in the partnership. Well, we know that number now, more than 400, including 31 in California. Drew Harwell wrote about this for The Washington Post. Drew, welcome to Take Two. Thank you. All right, just to start, uh, Ring is owned by Amazon. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos owns The Washington Post. Now, with that out of the way... 400 partnerships. Uh, LAPD is included in there. How do these video sharing partnerships work exactly? It is a special kind of data sharing deal where the police who partner up with Ring get their own what they call a neighbor's portal. But it's just a fancy website that an officer can go on. They see like a map interface. They can draw a box around the area where they're investigating a crime. They put in a few details like the case that they're pursuing, the date range, the time. And then Ring sends out these emails to any Ring homeowner in that area, just asking them, do you want to share your video, whatever was captured by your doorbell camera, 
with the police and potentially help in whatever investigation is happening. So I get to decide, though, right? Yeah, the user can say no, or the user can say, yes, here's everything. Ring offers this as the user is in control, the homeowner can consent to help, or they can, you know, say no and never get their request again. Now, just to be clear, I I got, you know, live feeds. That's what a lot of people have on Ring, live feeds. Police officers don't have access to that, do they? Right, no, they don't have ongoing or live video access. They can't just patch in when you don't know. They get special video clips from Ring. And when you have a Ring, you have like a whole gallery of video that has been recorded anytime the motion detector goes off. It's just those clips. But even if you say no, too, um, there are certain ways that police can get kind of legal clearance through something like a search warrant or a court order that would still allow them to see the video down the road. Why do law enforcement agencies say they want access to the videos? You know, they feel like the more evidence, the better. You know, in these residential neighborhoods where it's just a lot of homes and not really any cameras besides these, these doorbells are more eyes for them. And, you know, in a lot of these cases, the things that these doorbell cameras are picking up are things like package theft, vandals, other sort of shady characters. These are cases that the police wouldn't have any leads to go off of anyway. And so they feel like, hey, the more cameras, the more audio and video we can pour into our system. And, you know, these cameras are high definition, motion detecting, Internet connected. They provide a lot of good stuff if you're an investigator on the beat pursuing some sort of crime. Now, up until recently, it wasn't known how widespread the sharing partnership was. How did this number come to light? Some of us have been cobbling together our own informal estimates based off information we had. We had, you know, news reports. So a couple of us had gotten up to 200 or 300. And finally, I think after annoying Ring probably with (laughs) these requests, they have finally decided to kind of put that data out there. And, you know, they have 400 police agencies who are signed on. There are 18,000 police agencies across the country. So it's not everybody. But you can tell by the pace of growth that police see some interest here and Ring is more than happy to help set them up. Talking about Ring doorbell video sharing with Drew Harwell, who wrote about this for the Washington Post. Now, there are differing opinions over whether millions of connected video cameras make neighborhoods across the country safer. Taking the police out of the equation for a second, there is some controversy over how uh, neighborhoods share their videos amongst themselves, especially when it comes to reports of suspicious activity. Drew, I've seen this a million times, and sometimes I'm like, nah, that's not that suspicious. So when can things get controversial? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Sometimes the clips are really obvious crimes, people taking packages off the doorstep. But a lot of them are in this gray territory where it'll be somebody who's coming up and knocking on the door and just leaving without incident. And when you go onto Ring's social network, which is called Neighbors, it's like a crime-oriented feed where people can post official crime reports, but also just sort of discussions about, hey, did you see this sort of suspicious person walking down the street? You start to get a little unsettled because everybody's idea of who doesn't belong in a neighborhood is very different. And, of course, you think about the factors of racial profiling. We've seen kids in these examples, too, where there have been clips of, you know, there was one last year. It was Halloween. These these couple of young kids uh, knocked on a door and, you know, said trick or treat and then left without incident. Nothing happened. But the homeowner posted that video onto the social network and said, look at these kids. Are they up? to no good. 
And there was this discussion that came after that video where some people were saying, I would watch out for them. And other people saying, are you crazy? Like, these are two young kids. They've done nothing wrong. And yet their image and their voices and and their faces are on this, you know, social network devoted to crime. Now, Ring has given free cameras to police departments, asking them to distribute them to homeowners. And you write that for months, Ring has tried to keep the actual details of that police partnership program confidential. What's been uncovered about how they work with departments? They work pretty closely with the departments. And I think, you know, there has been some great public record-based reporting by outlets like Vice's Motherboard and Gizmodo and Cena, where they have gone to these specific police departments working with Ring, and they get the emails and they get the kind of correspondence between Ring and the police. You know, Ring has taken a very, they've been a very active kind of participant in this because I think they realize how it can be perceived. And so they've been careful to frame it as this is something that will contribute to public safety. This is not Big Brother. This is not surveillance. And so, you know, some police officers have talked about it in a way and then Ring has sort of reminded them, hey, we want to talk about it not in surveillance and security terms, but as this helpful tool. So it has been interesting kind of seeing that interplay. And and some of the privacy and civil liberties advocates worry about there being too much overlap between, you know, a public safety agency that has this mission that's devoted to the public good and, you know, a business like Ring that has financial goals in mind. Now, just to complicate things even more, Ring applied for a facial recognition patent last year that would alert owners when a suspicious person is caught on camera. Ring parent company Amazon is already developing software of their own. Uh, Drew, what could possibly go wrong? When people think about this stuff and start to think about Big Brother, facial recognition always comes up. It has seemed very science fiction for a long time, very sort of future dystopia. It's not that futuristic anymore. I mean, Amazon, obviously, which owns Ring, they develop a a facial recognition software that police departments are using right now, actually, to scan, you know, footage they find out in the wild against mugshots to potentially find people. And so, you know, them both having similar corporate owners, them both sort of being based around capturing these really clear photos of people's faces. There's no technical barrier anymore, really. Um, Ring has talked about their ambitions and growing to cover every police agency in the country. And they've talked about, you know, an interest in developing the technology, too. And and on that patent filing last year, they were suggesting, well, you could have sort of a positive list. You could put the images of your friends and family on the list, and then you would get a nice alert that, hey, your your daughter is home or whatever. But you could also have kind of a ban list. And anytime somebody came to your door that you didn't want to see, you could get an alert there. And so I think for some people, they would feel like, hey, that's a great technology. I, I would love to see that. But for other people, they see this is a level of maybe surveillance and, and data ownership by these private companies that I'm a little leery of. So yeah. the, the future plans are, are going to be really fascinating to watch. Drew Harwell writes about technology for The Washington Post. Drew, thanks a lot. Thank you. I wanted to see, I wanted to see Logan's Run, right? They had a movie of the future called Logan's Run. Ain't no niggas in it. I said, well, white folks ain't planning for us to be here. <laughs> The World Artificial Intelligence Conference has begun today in Shanghai and runs until Saturday. The theme of this year's gathering is Intelligent Connectivity, Infinite Possibilities. So what does that mean in practice? Tamazin Ford from our business unit has been keeping an eye on what's happening and what it means for the future. 
It was all kicked off this morning with a debate between Tesla CEO Elon Musk and Alibaba founder Jack Ma. Tesla, if you don't know, is the electric car and energy company and Alibaba is the world's biggest online commerce site. And naturally, the talk spilled over into how AI is going to feature in our lives. Jack Ma's opinion is that it will simply make our working days possibly shorter. We'll get more help from computers. While Elon Musk says we have two options either restudy to become an engineer or an artist. But apparently AI is going to take over everything else. Over time, AI will make jobs kind of pointless. Probably the last job that will remain will be doing writing AI software, and then eventually the AI will just write its own software. So, I don't know, I suppose I would recommend studying engineering, physics, that kind of thing, or working on something where people just want to interact with other people. People enjoy fundamentally interacting with other people. So if you're working on something that involves people or engineering, it's probably a good approach. You know, art, of course. So that's quite a scary prospect, um, but also a boost for China to have Elon Musk there because they have this vision to become the world leader in tech by 2030. And while this is called the World AI Conference, it, that makes you think this is where it's all at. But really, many of the people there are from China and there are other world AI events too. And some actually think the future of AI is in Africa. This year, Google launched its first AI hub there in Ghana's capital, Accra. Charles Afori Antipem is a tech entrepreneur there. He founded The Science Set, a textbook-sized kit to get kids interested in technology. They've already sold 30,000 to nine countries around the world since they launched two years ago. And he says the future of AI is in Africa. This whole scenario um, sort of reminds me of the, the mobile technology era. You know, when mobile technology first um, you know, started, Africa was a bit slow to adapt. But then we adapted really quickly and then actually began using the mobile technology in ways that were not, um, you know, conceived by um, other nations or continents that had already, you know, uh, jumped onto the mobile technology bandwagon. And, you know, we have mobile money and all of this really interesting stuff. We've sort of taken mobile technology and owned it. And I think the same thing is going to happen for AI. Considering the fact that Africa is going to have the youngest population in the world and seen as these young people are the ones that are going to be using all sort of smart technologies and sort of benefiting really from all of these really interesting things that AI has to offer, I think there's no better place that AI will have the most impact than in Africa. That's Charles Antipem, founder of The Science Set in Accra, Ghana. That was Tamazin Ford of our business team. Finally, and still on the subject of the future, what will life be like in 50 years from now? What's for dinner? Consult the menus on pictures and dish up something new for a change. Hummingbird wings on toast, maybe. And look where the toaster is. A wave of the hand and presto, down comes a hidden cabinet with the dishes. Right now, the question before the house is, what's cooking? And when do we eat? Just one prediction from the 1950s. And it seems as though scientists have been at it again. A new report outlines what the future has in store for us and says certain things will become routine in our lives within the next half century. Terry Egan has been looking at what they have to say. 
So this is a report. It's called The Future in Focus, and it's about what the world will look like in 2069, 50 years from now. It brings together predictions for the future by numerous experts, technological and scientific. Quite a few things, as you might imagine, a lot to do with our daily lives, so let me give you a few. And on that first score, it seems we might be living underground more with so-called inverted skyscrapers. I've seen those. They, they burrow down into the ground, and apparently they're good for earthquakes but, of course, also for more space. And on the subject of houses, we're likely to have self-cleaning houses where you just press a button and I go. I like the sound of that. I know, that can't, can't be bad. But in transport terms, we're going to be travelling around on subsonic transport systems. We'll be travelling along underwater highways in sealed tube systems using pods, apparently, but also air taxis, so I can't wait for those. And rockets will cut the time from London to New York to about 30 minutes, apparently. There's also leisure entertainment, and here we're looking at holidays in space, specifically hotels in space, which could orbit the moon or other planets, and apparently they're going to have their own gravity. Perhaps it's one way to keep the customers, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, on the weirder side, it seems we'll be eating insects. Now, we heard a bit about that in the last few days, pet food made of insects, but we're going to be eating insects, and that'll include burger takeaways. I don't know how that takes your fancy, but there, there's a, a good supply of insects apparently. And if you're a Harry Potter fan, we'll also be playing Quidditch-type games, aerial games on hoverboards. That was Terry Egan with The Glimpse of Life in the Future. As your body grows If you walk into a scientific institution in the United States, like a medical school or a university biology department, there's a good chance you'll see a dude wall. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce explains what a dude wall is and why some people say these walls should come tumbling down. Leslie Vosshall says the term dude wall was born at Rockefeller University in New York, where she works. Just outside its main auditorium is a wall that's covered with portraits of scientists from the university who've either won the Nobel Prize or a major medical prize that's sometimes called the American Nobel. 100% of them are men, and it's probably 30 headshots of 30 men. So it's, it's imposing. She says a few years ago, TV host Rachel Maddow came there to hand out a prestigious award that's always given to a female scientist. Vosshall says someone overheard Maddow say, What is up with the dude wall? That was her quote. What is up with the dude wall? Vosshall says the word dude wall crystallized something that had been bothering her for years. It just sends the message every day when you walk by it that science consists of old white men. She's now on a committee that's redesigning this display to add more diversity. And this isn't the only science institution having a discussion about its dude wall. At Yale School of Medicine, one main building's hallways have 55 portraits. There's three white women and 52 white men. They have a definite impact on people like Max Jordan Gumini Tiako. He's a black medical student who grew up reading Harry Potter books, which feature painted portraits that can talk. Like if this was Harry Potter or like Harry Potter, if they could speak, like what would they even say to me, right? Like everywhere you study, there's like a big portrait somewhere of like someone kind of staring you down. 
Yale medical student Niantara Anderson recently teamed up with a couple colleagues to study the effect of this art. The results were just published in a medical journal. Students felt like these portraits were not just ancient, historic things that had nothing to do with their contemporary experience. That they actually felt that the portraits reinforced、uh, contemporary issues of exclusion, of、uh, racial discrimination, of othering. Folks at Yale are pondering what to do about all these historic portraits. One option is to move them someplace else. That was the approach taken at the Department of Molecular and Integrative Physiology at the University of Michigan. Ali Kara is a PhD student there. She says in the department's seminar room, we had featured portraits of our past department chairs, which happened to be all male. The ten or so photographs were lined up in a row. So when our interim chair, Dr. Santiago Schnell, began his service a couple years ago, he wanted to. Bring a more modern update to our seminar room, including bringing down the dude wall and relocating it. The photos are now in a less noticeable spot, the department chair's office suite. The seminar room will soon be decorated with artwork depicting key discoveries made by the department. We really want to emphasize that we're not trying to erase our history. We're proud of the people that have brought us to where we are today as a department. She wants to emphasize this because these changes are sensitive. At Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, one of Harvard's teaching hospitals, there's an auditorium. For decades, its walls were covered with 31 paintings of men. Jeffrey Flyer of Harvard Medical School says he walked in there one day. And I was taken aback because instead of this room filled with portraits of historically important figures from the Brigham, the walls were empty. The portraits were relocated to different places around the hospital. Flyer says he gets why there needed to be a change. Still, he prefers the approach taken in another Harvard meeting room. It had long been decorated with paintings of former deans. All of those individuals were white males. I am among them now, <laughs> hanging up there、um, as the most recent former dean of Harvard Medical School. He says, right there with his portrait are photographs of female and African American physician scientists. His predecessor added them to the walls. Flyer says, thoughtfully adding new portraits is the way to go. You don't want to take away the history of which you are justifiably proud. Still, some argue that the old portraits themselves erased history, glorifying white men while ignoring the contributions made by women and minorities. One rare exception is Vivian Thomas. He was a black technician who worked for a white surgeon named Alfred Blaylock at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Together, they pioneered techniques for heart surgery. Thomas only had a high school degree, but a group of top surgeons commissioned his portrait and formally presented it to the hospital in 1971. Thomas told the assembled surgeons that he felt proud and humbled. People in my category are not accustomed to being in the limelight. Most of you are. If our names get into the print, it's usually in that very fine print down at the bottom somewhere. He was astounded to hear the hospital planned to hang his portrait alongside its painting of Blaylock. He was told, "You two always hung together, and you should continue to hang together." Nell Greenfield, Voice, NPR News. The cows, gusty renegade. We are having our counter-racist. Yoga retreat, ten-year anniversary of the cows. The retreat is in Florida. The dates: December twenty-eight to January one. 
Uh, we will have plant-based meals. Uh, Chef Nadira will be flying in from VA to cook us vegan breakfast, lunch, dinner for the duration of the retreat. Uh, we'll have yoga every day of the retreat. We'll have counter-racist workshops. We'll have food workshops as well. Should be a spectacular, constructive alternative to all of the normal December madness. It is that time of year. School is starting across the country. It can be a stressful time for kids and parents. One nonprofit program, Yoga for Youth, is trying to help students combat anxiety and practice relaxation in schools and in community centers. This story was produced by teachers and students who participated in the PBS NewsHour Student Reporting Lab's annual Summer Academy. And it's part of our regular series on education, Making the Grade. I was getting, you know, rejection letters from scholarships and programs I wanted to do, and I was applying to colleges, so it was extremely overwhelming and stressful. As a teenager, I really wanted to please everyone. I just wanted everyone to be happy. When you do that, you are not happy yourself. We're going to do this with our eyes closed. After seeing his students struggle, Northwood High School art teacher Dharma Atma Singh started using yoga to help them cope with anxiety. I was having a tough day with kids and I pulled out my yoga mat and I sat down and started doing some, some meditation, but I had forgotten to lock my doors. And two of my roughest kids came rolling through the door and I said, sit down, I'll show you. And so the number of kids started expanding. For Dharma's former students, Brianna and Marley, yoga gave them a new lease on life during the most difficult time of their high school careers. A lot of our kids, in fact, I would say most of our kids are in crisis uh, in one form or another. We have a lot of anxiety, stress, trauma that happens in life. And kids who are teenagers, it's a difficult time of transition for them anyway. Now, Dharma hopes to share his yoga practice with teachers throughout Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland. He uses a curriculum developed by Yoga for Youth, a nonprofit organization working to bring yoga and mindfulness to students across the country. Emily Cord, an elementary school teacher, is attending Dharma's workshop. It helps me be more mindful about what's going on in students' lives and really think about how I can support them better through different stretches or exercises to deal with these challenges in their lives. I go to school in the Appalachia area where public schools are pretty low funded and there's a lot of problems. After college, I'm hoping to take a year to save and get my yoga teacher training. Dharma says his ultimate goal is to spread his message of peace and love to everyone who needs it. Yoga for Youth provides them with tools in their tool belt to be able to self-regulate and to manage themselves to make good decisions, to you know, deal with their stress, their anxiety, their pressures that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Meditation has helped me to find empathy for a wider range of people. For PBS NewsHour's Student Reporting Labs, I'm Damian Henson in Silver Spring, Maryland. And that was from Northwood High School in Silver Spring. Thank you. M I crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, hook back, hook back I. <laughs> Today marks 64 years since Emmett Till, a black teenager, 14 years old, visiting from Chicago, 
was brutally killed in Mississippi. The murder helped propel the civil rights movement. Today, Till's name is still invoked when innocent blood is shed in racial violence. But telling the story of Emmett Till remains fraught in Mississippi, where historical markers have been repeatedly vandalized. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Civil rights tour guide Jesse Janes Deming is standing under a thick green canopy on a remote riverbank in the Mississippi Delta. Well, we're here on the banks of the Tallahatchie River. This is where Emmett's body was removed. There's an eerie, deep woods quiet as the murky water flows by. It's always a sacred, listen, listen to this location. There's a cotton field across the gravel road, but nothing to note the historic site. That's because a memorial installed in 2008 has been repeatedly vandalized, shot through with bullet holes. The sign was removed last month after an image surfaced of three white University of Mississippi fraternity brothers posing next to it with guns. James Deming says it was painful to see. Because it's commemorating the last place that Emmett touched on this earth. She's part of the Emmett Till Memorial Commission, which is trying to preserve sites like this. It hasn't always been welcome. There was a lot of pushback. Whites and blacks came to our meetings and, why are you all bringing this up? Why don't y'all let that die? The sentiment lingers for some. People in Tallahatchie County are to a great degree tired of Emmett Till. John Whitten is a former county prosecutor who lives in Sumner, Mississippi, where the two men who killed Till were tried and acquitted by an all-white jury, only to confess to the killing when they sold their story to Look Magazine months later. Whitten's father was one of the defense attorneys. John Whitten was seven years old at the time and still sticks with the version of the story he learned back then. The fellow who came down here and got into trouble overstepped his bounds to a degree, some folks thought, and and they cured him of his problems. Whitten sees no reason to commemorate Till's murder. Every day, somebody's dragging up the race card. Somebody's saying we have racial disparity here. If nobody would stir that damn pile of stuff up, it wouldn't stink. The issue of race is still the undercurrent about the discussion of Emmett Till. Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson. Just like Mississippi, there's the the white side of the story, and there's the black side, and they don't necessarily agree. Till was kidnapped, beaten, shot in the head, and dumped in the bayou, weighted down by a heavy industrial fan taken from a cotton gin, activities that stretched across three counties. The story begins here in Money, Mississippi, at Bryant Grocery, where Emmett Till allegedly flirted with a white woman, a violation of Jim Crow social norms. The building is in ruins, overtaken by trees and vines. You can barely make out a private property sign posted out front. By letting the trees and so forth grow up around it and letting the the walls fall down, it's a way to let history fade into invisibility. Riley Morse is director of the Mississippi Center for Justice, which is supporting efforts by Congressman Thompson and others to have this and other sites protected as part of the National Park Service. Morse says for decades there's been a reluctance to draw attention to the building. It's just a symptom of America's struggle to come to grips with its history of of racial brutality. Uh, And for folks that live here, 
there's uh, been over generations, I think, a tendency to sweep it all under the rug to the extent possible. And there's shame attached to it. Even so, the site is drawing attention. When we came by to see this part of history about Emmett Till. Alexis Ortiz and Miguel Correa of Brooklyn are on a civil rights road trip. You have to take a moment to reflect and think about what, you know, the magnitude of that event. And um, there's a lot of parallels to things today. And so it's not just history. It's something that a lot of people are still living If the history of Emmett Till was swept under the rug before, one driving force in commemorating it now is tourism and the potential to bring new money to the Mississippi Delta, a largely agricultural landscape that struggles to attract new industry. The Tallahatchie County Courthouse, where the trial was held, has undergone a multi-million dollar renovation, and there's an interpretive center on the courthouse square. In tiny Glendora, an old cotton gin has been converted to a museum. Mayor Johnny Thomas founded it to interpret the story a different way. Basically, African Americans didn't have an opportunity to tell any of the story back uh, in 1955 when it did happen. And the story never got told from an African American perspective. There is way more at stake than simply a history lesson on what happened in 1955. Dave Tell is a professor at the University of Kansas and author of the book Remembering Emmett Till. He calls memory sites like signs and monuments the new lunch counters. Much like in the 1960s, racial politics were worked out at lunch counters, sidewalks, swimming pools. In the 21st century, we work out our racial politics For example, battles over the flag or statues or the names of dormitories, right? Time and again, our racial politics are worked out at commemorative sites. To combat the repeated attacks by vandals, Tell has helped the Memorial Commission create a smartphone app called the Emmett Till Memory Project, a virtual tour including pictures, documents, and maps. The basic idea is that you can't shoot an app. The University of Mississippi fraternity brothers who posed with guns at the bullet-riddled marker were suspended by the Kappa Alpha order. The fraternity declined to comment to NPR, but the local chapter president has reached out to the Emmett Till Memorial Commission. Executive Director Patrick Weem says he welcomes a dialogue. And it's not just about replacing the sign, but it's what do they teach their, what do they teach their fraternity members What is their social impact to their community? As far as replacing the sign, Weems is getting help from a fifth-generation local farmer who is donating land to better protect the site. It will be dedicated in October with a bulletproof marker and new security measures. Some of Till's relatives will be part of the ceremony. This is justice for our family. Erica Gordon-Taylor is Till's cousin and runs a family foundation in Chicago that works with victims of racially motivated crimes. She says the family is also awaiting word from the U.S. Justice Department, which has reopened the Till murder case. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Money, Mississippi. Scandalous. Money, greed, and lust. In this trife life, there ain't nobody you can trust. Plus, there's no justice, it's just us. In fact, watching your back, it be a must. And each and every day around the way, gats bust. And jealous so-called friends will try to set you up. It's called betrayal. Wow, Jay-Z. Really? 
I know I don't know you, but I guess I thought I knew enough about you to think that you were someone for whom principle was paramount. But I guess that old cynicism is true. Everybody has a price. Even wealthy Forbes-ranked business moguls like you, who this year became the fifth black billionaire in the country. When someone told me about your new deal with the NFL, I thought he'd misunderstood. Surely you, long a vocal supporter of Colin Kaepernick's kneeling protests, could not be making a deal with the NFL. The same NFL which many believe blackballed Kaepernick because of his silent protest against police killings of young black men. The same NFL which never admitted to blackballing, instead responding to lawsuits by Kaepernick and fellow kneeling protester Eric Reed by settling out of court. How did you go from wearing Kaepernick's jersey last year to transacting in the name of social justice? From actually calling out the artists performing for the Super Bowl halftime show to negotiating future Super Bowl halftime performances with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. And even worse, making the deal without first alerting Kaepernick. It would still be a betrayal of his and our trust, but at least you'd have been transparent about it. Activist and columnist Sean King took to Twitter to explain to those of us puzzled, angry, and confused by this deal that you are a proud capitalist and that if a good deal comes along, even if it means working with the NFL at the expense of Colin Kaepernick, he'll make the deal. Intellectually, I understand what King is saying, but emotionally, I am deeply disappointed. I was never a rabid fan able to recite lyrics from every hit song, and in truth, some I don't want to say out loud, but I have long applauded how you've used your artistry to both build an historic career and to develop other musical artists. More recently, I've been proud of the way that you've used your enormous pop culture business platform to fund revealing documentaries about young black men like Khalif Browder, imprisoned in Rikers Island for allegedly stealing a backpack, and Trayvon Martin, gunned down for carrying a bag of Skittles and an iced tea. Young men who embody the reason for the movement led by Colin Kaepernick. Young men like your own son, Sir Carter, who without the silver spoon protection you've earned for him, could be at risk too. Not only did the deal-making stun me, but I am cut to the core by your response to a reporter saying, I think we've moved past kneeling, adding, I think everyone knows what the issue is. We're done with that. Are you for real? If I had a nickel for every time I've had to explain the reason behind Kaepernick's protest, maybe I'd be one of Forbes' top riches. I expect this kind of deal with the devil from the known sellouts, too many to list here, whose life's work is to act as a cover for people and organizations who can't spell social justice. But you are one of the few celebrities who seem to both walk and talk your activism. One of the few with enough money to be freely outspoken without fear of economic sanctions. There was no real need for you to sit down with the stubbornly unrepentant NFL. Greed is good, extolled the fictional movie character Gordon Gecko. I'm sorry he's been proven right yet again. I'm Callie Crossley, WGBH, Boston's local NPR. Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. 
context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 31st, 2019. So I have been told this is our compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, suggestions, uh, counter racist ideas to help solve the problem. Uh, the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564 Four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Share the broadcast if you're on Instagram, social media, wherever. Share. Let other folks know if you think it would help them be a little bit less confused uh, about white supremacy or racism. Uh, I'm tweeting right now. So much to get to uh, this week, uh, information uh, to share. Uh, I reckon, uh, first of all, Callie Crosley, uh, she is uh, a black female journalist. I have long emphasized the importance uh, of black journalists and have made an effort. I I try to check on her uh, reporting regularly. Uh, I've played clips uh, that she's made uh, often victims guaranteed qualified that means she can take any position that she wants on racism white supremacy mr jay-z also vgq victims guaranteed qualified uh and i just i think it is i'll tell when i heard that and this was not the first person uh first even non-white person that i heard who was very critical of jay-z for his signing a deal uh with the nfl uh lots of millions uh, I've heard a lot of people who've criticized him for him, uh, about that. But the first thing that I thought, uh, there is a non-white, non-black female. Uh, she's a Seattle resident. She spoke to me about Jay-Z. She didn't like him. And she used the uh, the profane word uh, for feces to describe Jay-Z and it it just it stuck out because I was not you know trying to convince her you need to go and download his entire discography or anything like that or I don't even know how how he came up uh and just to be so derogatory uh immediately about uh, a black person I'm not you know a huge uh Jay-Z fan myself but just the the speed with which in a system of white supremacy that uh, black people are generally uh, despised uh, and just adverse commentary uh, made about them. So that was the first thing I thought about. But then as I began to uh, evaluate, uh, particularly just some of the language around the critiques, betrayal, that was the word that was used, that uh, Jay-Z betrayed us. And I said, whoa, I, I don't remember Jay-Z making an agreement with me, I certainly don't have uh, a contract or, you know, a video recording, audio record, nothing. 
uh, where we had an agreement that he would not do business uh, with the NFL or anything else uh, related to racism, white supremacy. I don't have that uh, piece of paper, that recording. If somebody does, please step forward. If there's an interview that he gave that, you know, said you should do this or you shouldn't do that or he would never do this or whatever the case is, present that. The other part, even if you did, that's in the code. You can change your mind. Mr. Fuller has said that explicitly. You can get up today is Saturday, August 31. You can get up today and say, I'm all about counter-racism. I'm going to be all about eating correctly, correct use of time and energy, all of that, suspicious of every white person. You can get up tomorrow, Sunday, September 1. Eh, I'm not doing any of that today. I'm going to go call my white friend, Bill. We're going to go hang out. I'm going to eat McDonald's and uh, just have a blast. Hopefully, I'll make some more white friends. You can do that as a victim of white supremacy. So, even if, you know, Mr. Jay-Z changed his mind, that is allowed. Uh, but I just, that is a huge aspect of this system. It is very permissible to verbally attack another black person with cause, without cause. That is very permissible, particularly if it's, you know, we think they are a quote-unquote sellout. I said this before. Some of this just comes down to words that are being used because it's so common. Sellout. In my view, following the logic, that's the main thing, following logic. What do we mean when we say sellout? In my view, if you're a victim of racism, white supremacy, at any time, in any area of people activity, you ma'am, you sir, are a sellout. That would qualify at any time. Enforcement official pulls over behind you, turns those lights on and you pull over, you just sold out. can list a whole lot of examples. We talk about workplace racism all the time. That's selling out every time you go into work. Lots of examples. We could go down the list. Every time you uh, comply, going through TSA, that is selling out. If I'm being inaccurate, you can speak up. But again, in the system of racism, it's not allowed. I don't, and I guess people can let me know, I don't hear Victims of white supremacy being given a platform. Miss uh, Crawley, her, uh, she is on Boston Public Radio. I don't hear victims of white supremacy being given uh, a major platform like that to give a three or four minute critique about a white person and them practicing racism and how they have betrayed black people with their actions. I don't hear that too often. Maybe President Trump, and I mean, you better be careful about calling the president a racist. You can ask uh, the current president's pal Kanye West about that. You better be careful, uh, anybody, about calling the president a racist if you are a non-white person. Anywho, uh, VGQ, again, for everyone uh, involved, VGQ. Try to minimize the amount of time and energy that we spend critiquing other victims of racism. They are not the problem. And I guess the other thing that I would add to that what I thought was more important about this, uh, jumping up and down and fussing about, you know, whether or not he signed this deal and whatever sellout is supposed to be and, and who can truthfully say that they are not a sellout while still being subject to white supremacy. I thought, wow, this happens concurrently with uh, Andrew Luck, white quarterback suspected racist for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, he retires this week. Young guy, prime of his career, team that, you know, they say could contend for a championship, and he retires. Cites, you know, health reasons, 
you know, I've had a lot of injuries, want to take care of myself, want to make sure that I can be around functioning, have not too much brain damage so that I can move forward in life. He retires. I say, wow, Jay-Z signing this deal. I could easily see as you have more and more white people being concerned about this. I could easily see football becoming a much more black game. What I mean, uh, having an even higher percentage of black players uh, where you just have more and more uh, white parents saying, oh, no way. I'm not going to have my white child, my white son uh, out there in that barbaric. Uh, no, no. Remember a few years ago, they were trying to let some females play football like in high school. Total nonsense. Violence in the system of white supremacy. Anyway, I could see more and more white parents saying that they're not going to tolerate this. They're not going to put their child out there uh, to be brain damaged and to ruin their bodies uh, for life. Uh, and just see it. And particularly more black quarterbacks. I think that would be the signal to have tons, tons and tons and tons uh, of black quarterbacks. I would say just watch over the next two to three years if you see that transition uh, where football just becomes increasingly black. And this could be a part of that campaign. We'll have Jay-Z as our lead spokesperson and just make it a a much more black game uh, where we can still enjoy it. And the people that will be getting all the brain damage uh, will be even more predominantly black people going out there to suffer for our entertainment. Next, we are listener-supported, counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows uh, has helped reduce, minimize some of your confusion about white supremacy, racism, what it means to be classified as white. Visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. When you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. We are also on cash app. Uh, the address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged for all the folks who have invested a decade of counter-racist broadcasting uh if you are not into all of that high-tech uh new high-tech gadgetry then you can drop an email and uh we can get you a physical mailing address uh again Enormous gratitude to all the folks who have invested. I hope we have been and continue to be worthy of your time and energy. Also, you can support uh, by going to our Amazon wish list. Uh, It's listed under Gus T. Renegade. Huge thanks to all the folks who have nabbed items over the past decade. Uh, Again, hope the broadcast worthy of the support and providing accurate information and suggestions on what to do to solve the problem. Uh, Let's see. With the report on Emmett Till, I thought uh, that's always important to uh, remember August 28th. uh, That's the reason the March on Washington was on August 28th is Emmett Till. Huge influence. Uh, But they left out the castration of Emmett Till, black male, the man, not Dr. Tommy Curry and the delectable Negro, both in our top 10, both read on our book club. Uh, but they left that out. And I think that's so consistent uh, in erasing. They talked about erasing from history, uh, erasing that uh, critical uh, and seemingly at times omnipotent uh, act of white terrorism uh, got to attack the genitals of black people. Uh, Let's see. 
the oh for the folks who are in the path of the hurricane should have started with that i uh, hope folks florida area uh, caribbean uh, other folks uh, in the southeast region of the u.s I uh, hope you all uh, are safe, taking whatever means uh, that you think are appropriate uh, if you're leaving or hunkering down, getting your supplies. Uh, but hope everybody is safe who's having to uh, deal with the uh, hurricane and uh, extreme weather. Uh, we had uh, weeping white women and quite a few uh, white apologies uh, for really trifling acts of racism. Uh, I think the KOC, uh, Alex uh, Housden suspected race soldier uh, on the newscast uh, who compared uh, her black uh, colleague uh, to a gorilla and then they came out with this uh, orchestrated uh, apology uh, where she begins whimpering immediately Uh, it's like she as soon as they said okay five four three two cry she started crying before she even got any words out and they had i felt it was worse the apology in terms of how that victim of racism was mistreated as opposed to the just initial, oh, that gorilla looks just like you. Ha, 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 ha. That, you know, like, yeah, that's, you know, par for that. They called President Obama a monkey every day. So, you know, no big deal. Next next clip. What's going to be on the weather for today? We could have just continued and left it at that. To have to come out for that tacky apology, which was way longer than the initial uh, incident. The apology segment was like three minutes. Uh, you got to sit with this. Uh, weeping racist uh, and hear all of her tacky apologies about how you're her best friend and she's so sorry and she knows what she said was wrong and you gotta accept, I mean of course you gotta accept the apology, it's not like he could come out and be like, uh, you know you are a suspected racist in my book until proven otherwise now, you know, let's get on with the weather, it's not like he could have done that uh, and stayed employed, so system of white supremacy that would be selling out too by the way gus t any anybody if you are a victim of racism that's a synonym for selling out by the way so that'd be another uh illustration incidentally if i could rewind to jay-z briefly since we are in a system of white supremacy anybody think it's possible that race soldiers could have come i mean the nfl is a multi-billion dollar industry that is all about violence Anybody think it's possible that they could have come to him and say, hey, Mr. Carter, uh, you can sign this deal. Work with us. Get jiggy with our Super Bowls and what have you. Uh, Or, you know, be a shame if something were to happen to Beyonce. Mm. Oh, we didn't mean anything by it. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. Is that not possible? They could have, you know, made any kind of threat. Bill Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. Moving forward, uh, uh, I'll give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate, if you could take about five minutes uh, for your comments, questions, uh, suggestions, uh, if you have to offer, that would be great. Uh, make sure everybody has at least one chance to speak. Uh, if you have additional comments, uh, if you can just wait till everyone has spoken at least once, and then we should have ample time for you to share. Uh, if you know you are in a noisy environment, uh, if you could please use your mute button, uh, just makes it easier so we don't have to compete with a lot of uh, background noise and distortion. Uh, and then you could just unmute yourself when you're ready to speak, and then you can mute your line again. 
additionally, for this one broadcast, the compensatory call-in, I do request that we not use metaphors. There were many, I was going to use my own metaphors, and there were a boatload of them, but there were a plethora of metaphors uh, included this week. My goodness, I, I didn't even have time uh, to keep my pen to keep up. We, we had cut to the core. That's what they said about Jay-Z signing with the deal with the NFL, uh, that it cut her to the core, BGQ. Uh, we had the white man in the Emmett Till case. I uh, said, I believe, I, I did have a difficult time hearing a little bit, but I think he said, uh, if you don't stir the pot up, stuff, it wouldn't stink. Make sure I get it in. If you don't stir the pot up, of stuff up, that was it. If you don't stir the pot of stuff up, it wouldn't stink. That's what he said as it relates to racism and why he's tired of talking about Emmett Till. That was the metaphor that he used for the castration and lynching of Emmett Lewis Till, 14-year-old black child, if you don't stir the pot of stuff up, it wouldn't stink. Let's see. what. Oh, othering. That was another one of the metaphors uh, that we had this week. I don't know what that means, and I do have a list of words that should not be used. Other is uh, on that list. I have no idea what people are talking about when they use that phrase. Uh, there were a lot of them. You all can probably insert some of your own. Uh, white side and a black side of history. That was another one that was used. Again, I have no idea what that means. And even within the context that it was said, it was a non-white person who said that about the Emmett Till uh, case, uh, saying that there's a white side of history and a black side of history. I don't know what that means because in the same clip, they said that they had white and black people saying, why don't you just let it alone? Why don't you just let it die? I don't want to talk about Emmett Till anymore. And I totally believe that because I've had black people tell me the exact same thing. That's almost cliche uh, to hear that from some victims of racism. That's how successful white supremacists have been. That's also a victim of terrorism. Uh, but so that's what I mean. It can't be a black side of history if you have black people saying, well, I don't want to talk about this anymore. There's not a uniform uh, black understanding of this event or racism period. You would want an accurate telling of the events. Racists, whites, have a pattern of being deceptive, of lying, and sometimes just out and out concealing what happened altogether. What we want is an accurate telling of information. There we go. Uh, so no metaphors for this broadcast. Racists skillfully use metaphors to cause confusion. You don't stir up the pot of stuff, it wouldn't stink. Uh, we have been exposed to this misconduct for centuries, myself included, uh, and we are still learning. Uh, as such, sometimes we don't have uh, logic to articulate our views, so we will substitute with an analogy, simile, comparison of some sort. Often that just generates a lot more confusion. Uh, if we could be uh, direct, explicit about what we want to say, that would be appreciated. Uh, last thing I will say before we get to our callers, the segment on yoga being used to manage anxiety and stress stood out for a number of reasons uh, or was important to Gusty Renegade, certified uh, yoga instructor, general and prenatal certified yoga instructor, uh, hosting the Cow's Yoga Retreat in Florida, December 28th to January 1. Uh, but particularly in that segment where 
I believe it was all audio. There's no video. So, but uh, from the voice, if I had to guess, I suspect that was a non-white person. She said she was going to take up a year to save up money for teacher training. I said, wow. Compensatory investment request. Admitted racist Anna Brown Griswold paid my teacher training. I thought that was substantial. You can go back and listen in the broadcast. Those compensatory investment requests can be helpful. Uh, but that right there, white people could just knock that out. That that right there, the fee and how much it costs. Uh, yoga does not have a lot of equipment. Like they give a lot of excuses for why you don't have a lot of black golfers or uh, black people uh, participating in like equestrian and different sports like that where it's expensive. You got a lot of equipment that you have to buy yoga mat sometimes you don't even need that nothing else you can get a yoga mat for ten dollars you can probably get a white person to donate you a yoga mat for free no big deal uh but it's expensive the teacher training it costs thousands of dollars she said she was taking a year to save for teacher training it costs thousands of dollars to be a certified instructor, that white validation, which often white people demand is important. They demand that you have a white person say, oh yeah, this here uh, nigra is, is qualified to teach you some yoga. Absolutely, and I say so. Well, sign my name on this one. They require it. It wouldn't just be, oh, I've practiced and I studied and I read these books and I you know, practiced a lot myself and da da da. No, gotta have that piece of paper. Same way that you know it is with a whole lot of fields. Uh, but the expense uh, of doing it in addition to all the racism uh, of the white women and the environment and everything else. But the benefits using yoga to manage stress and anxiety. I think even some of the people from the first cows yoga retreat uh, commented on just breathing because so much of yoga focuses on breathing and breathing exercises to try to calm you down, lower your stress, help you practice relaxing they will even say that in some classes that just like everything else if it's you know basketball or whatever it is that you are into counter racism you have to practice relaxation as well they will give you relaxation uh, techniques breathing exercises is one of them but yeah that was important to me for a variety of reasons but just that alone the expense of being a yoga instructor, a huge weapon in the system of white supremacy. And again, that's something they can make easy. White people could have all kinds of scholarships so that you could be a yoga instructor, no problem. 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, I am uh, somewhat surprised to share that I think the iTunes feed should be uh, working, or at least it's working again for the time being. Uh, I was able to upload uh, all of the broadcasts from this week. It seems they're on the feed, so uh, I will get on the counter-racist grind and see if, uh, at least while it's working, uh, if I can get the iTunes feed to be current. I know a lot of people uh, said that's the easiest method for them to be able to access uh, the content. So we'll see if I can get it current as soon as possible, but it does seem to be working. And at least the most recent programs from this week uh, should be available there. Uh, first few folks uh, who dialed in 
with a hand up. Proceed. how folks are spectating or getting to a spot uh, where they can speak. I have been trying to, or I haven't been trying, I've just failed uh, to catch him, uh, Keith Beauchamp. Uh, he's been on the broadcast. Uh, folks who are ignorant, if race soldiers uh, have successfully uh, misinformed you about what happened to Emmett Lewis Till, uh, his documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till, uh, it's available, the documentary on uh, YouTube. It is definitely worth uh, a viewing is not super long, uh, and I think you'll learn a lot. He was a guest on the program uh, twice, in fact. We talked about that film and some of his other uh, documentary work. Uh, I think all of his projects relate to white supremacy racism in some way. Uh, so I would definitely encourage uh, both check out uh, his films, uh, the Emmett Till documentary, as well as his other projects, and when he was a guest on the program. But I have been trying to uh, reach him to have him uh, visit us again to talk about the shooting uh, of the uh, statue, uh, the memorial site, uh, and what that means, especially for these young white men uh, engaged in this shooting and proud of their at standing by the, the bullet-riddled sign. Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to get him uh, back on the program to address the more recent events. He has been posting about it uh, on social media quite a bit. Uh, let's see. Uh, folks. Can I be heard? Uh, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, yeah, I was uh, kind of chuckling at the uh, racist suspect white voice that uh, that made the uh, the uh, metaphor uh, or cliche, uh, and it goes to uh, your uh, request. It goes to your request about not using metaphors and or cliches as a counter-racist exercise on Saturdays uh, to build up uh, to build up uh, a vocabulary, a precise counter-racist codified uh, vocabulary uh, that speaks directly to the system of racism and white supremacy and can also speak towards solving the problem. Uh, I think he said if, uh, if you don't stir up stink, it wouldn't smell. Well, with that actual statement, it also indicates that it must be uh, some uh, feces in the environment. Uh, he just doesn't want, in this case, he doesn't want racism to be talked about uh, because uh, he's stating that uh, it is there. So stop uh, bringing it to uh, the uh, conscious of people. That's basically what he was uh, stating as far as how I can interpret that. But uh, yeah, it, it gives, uh, it gives uh, uh, credit to what you are suggesting on Saturdays. Uh, 
my uh, only report is uh, an observation that I've had recently. Uh, it's going to professional sports, quote unquote, uh, and in this case, it's dealing with females, and and, and my concern is is with non-white black females over the idea of the uh, of a lot of publicity with uh, the the uh, black female who uh, is uh, uh, basically uh, winning in uh, professional tennis. Uh, I mean, I don't personally, I don't have anything against her uh, or, or her family and what she's doing, but uh, uh, because from the standpoint of making a quote unquote living, uh, I would say that uh, tennis, professional tennis is about the only professional sport. Well, that in golf is the only two professional sports where females can rival in income with their uh, male counterparts. Uh, but the difference is, is that uh, golf courses do not uh, permeate very close to areas where non-white people are at. They're so large, and uh, but tennis courts do. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend it collectively. Uh, I don't think we need another professional uh, sports uh, interests uh, where a whole lot of non-white black young people would be uh, uh, hanging around a, uh, the, 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 for the opportunity. And there's so many other things that we can find ourselves doing uh, that are needed to be done other than uh, you know, playing a sport. Uh, from a professional level, I can understand the idea of you know a scholarship, which is actually it's funds that can support you to uh, go to college, uh, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, professional sports wise, as far as being a uh, a, a huge uh, interest would not be uh, a uh, constructive uh, effort collectively on non-white black people's part. And uh, that's my thoughts for the, today. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Priorities, time and energy, basics. Mr. Fuller talks about that all the time, constructive use, of time and energy. <clears throat> Other folks uh, who dialed in, if you have suggestions, comments to share, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, greetings and greetings to everyone. I will start with saying, again, we should verbally say, I will end the system of white supremacy as soon as possible. I can end the system of white supremacy as soon as possible. I can end the white, I can end the system of white supremacy. The system of white supremacy can be ended. 
you have to, I think you have to say this verbally. I, it's, it's more than I think. I, I'm pretty sure you have to say this out loud. And then I think it would be best if you wrote it down also. Um, but with saying it out loud, it's frightening the amount of surveillance that we have. Um, there's segments about the surveillance. So there, the phones are always recording. The cameras are always recording. The, um, and, and the audio for the, for the phones are always recording. So if you say it, you'll probably be heard. White people will probably know. Unless you leave your phone and you go somewhere where you know there's no electronics and you say it out loud. But white people will know that you've said it. Say it anyway. Uh, when I was in Ghana, the surveillance, the first time I went to Ghana, there wasn't this amount of surveillance that there was this time that I went. Um, when I went to the airport, there wasn't this, the, the cameras looking you in your, or pointing directly at your face, you know, real close, like, I mean, like really close to you, pointing at your face and, and then showing you the, you know, so it, it was different. They didn't have, they didn't have all these cameras. The, the airport looked different. There wasn't cameras on, every, so now there wasn't cameras on all the streets, but now you walk down the streets and at the intersections, it's almost like you, it's, it's hard to avoid. You, you will be seen when you go to these other countries. At the intersections, they have the cameras and pointing in a lot of different directions. And then the, 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 the houses, I couldn't get away from the cameras. They're everywhere. You will be seen and you will be heard. But you still have to say it. I will end the system of white supremacy. I will end this system. And I also wanted to speak about um, morbidly obese black people. I've noticed, well, I've noticed that a lot of... Oh, uh, pardon me, sir. Imhan DC. I'm sorry for interrupting. Just for the sake of conversation, because um, I've heard that sometimes that definition can move around. When you say morbidly obese, uh, what, what do you mean? Just so we have a little more detail. It means that you're about to die soon mm. because you're not eating the correct foods. Okay. Much um, thank you, sir. Yes, sir. So I've noticed a lot of black women that have a lot of melanation, what people would call dark-skinned women. A lot of dark-skinned women in the area that I'm in are morbidly obese, but if they lost the weight, they're actually beautiful women. You can, you can look at them, look at the structure. You can see what they'll look like once they lose the weight. They're beautiful women. A lot of, the, a lot of our beautiful women are morbidly obese, which means you're about to die because you're not eating the correct things and you're, you have a whole lot of fat. So it's, it's just, it's really sad. It's, it's really, really sad. And I was talking to my mother about it and, you know, we were just discussing, well, it's because they get mistreated for their color. Um, but that's sad. It's sad. It makes me sad. Um, but I've noticed a lot of the dark skinned, beautiful women, all of our women, I, I think are beautiful, but I'm telling you, um, the other thing I, I wanted to mention, well, I would just say eat correctly so we can, we can change that. The other thing, um, I wanted to mention is having white people in your family. What, don't do that. I, I think it's a very bad idea to have a white mother-in-law, father-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, 
we're in the, we're in a, this is a war. This is a serious war. This has been generations, you know, don't do it. Um, the other thing I'll try to move more quickly. Um, Africa, I know we don't have, I, I know we don't have an alliance, but I'm thinking we're going to have to have an alliance where there's going to have to be some type of unity. There's going to have to be a lot of people doing the same thing. A lot of people abiding by, let's say a code. And we're going to have to have this alliance. We have to work together. The African countries will do it. They will align with us, ally with us. And it's mandatory. This isn't, this isn't something that it's optional. This is a mandatory thing. I'm saying it's mandatory. And I, I, I think it will come to pass to prove that it is mandatory and it will happen. Um, it, it has to happen. The last thing I wanted to say, I spoke to Dr. Fuller, Mr. Fuller, excuse me. I spoke to Mr. Fuller and I was asking him, can white supremacy exist if white people do not exist? He said no. However, he disagreed with a number of my viewpoints. But how else does white supremacy not exist? What is the way that white supremacy does not exist? What has to be done? Uh, thank you. VGQ? Uh, with, with your observation about the black females who have a lot of melanin uh, and are morbidly uh, obese. Uh, it reminded me of Dr. Welsing, uh, Black Get Back, uh, and just the data, the evidence that the darker you are, uh, the more mistreated that you will be. Uh, and I can see that in a variety of forms. The darker you are, uh, they've already said that means more likely that she'll get the death penalty, uh, less likely to be hired, uh, all of the different ways that that uh, manifests and all of the additional uh, abuse uh, and how that is manifest, uh, what they call comfort eating uh, and or maybe that means that you just get stockpiled in what they call a ghetto food desert, as they say, that's another metaphor. Uh, maybe you just get stockpiled there uh, and they don't have all the wonderful stores with organic fruits and Brussels sprouts and peaches and blueberries and strawberries and kale and collard greens so that you can be healthy uh, and your normal weight so that you could be uh, beautiful, gorgeous. Uh, as Imhan DC said, you're morbidly obese. All you got is Popeye's chicken franchises and McDonald's uh, piled up in your area. Um, the Afrim, oh, that was the one question I was going to ask. With the um, affirmations, vocalizing it on a daily basis uh, that I can uh, end white supremacy. I will end white supremacy as soon as possible. Is that something that you say on a daily basis? Um, on a daily basis, I, I'm not sure how I say it out loud. I say it out loud a lot. I, often I like uh, to answer your question. I say it as, as very often, if not on a daily basis. Much obliged, much obliged. I do see a value in verbal words are powerful. There is a reason uh, that we don't use metaphors uh, on this particular broadcast, the compensatory call in words are important uh, and particularly saying things out loud. That does have power, even if you're the only one to hear it.
speaking of which, does anybody here have any of those uh, devices, the ring device or anything else that they were, uh, any of the similar devices where there's a camera uh, on the doorbell or, or if you have the camera attached, I guess, 24-7 uh, uh, and it's recording and, and live streaming. Anybody have those sort of uh, devices uh, where you're concerned enforcement officials having access uh, to this footage uh, about who's coming to your residence or that type of thing? Does anybody have any of that technology currently uh, at their residence? Uh, I'd be curious to know uh, how all of that is going if you do. Uh, let's see, other folks who dialed in, if we've missed you totally, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Oh, and anybody here who can truthfully say, I'm not a sellout. Racist, they do something to me or they say something to me that is abuse, mistreatment. I do not comply at all. Like, that doesn't happen to me. If anybody can truthfully say that, I would love to hear from that person. Uh, others that we missed totally proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Hi, this is um, Knowledge, a victim from out of New York City. First time caller, long time listener. Um, I'm a, I'm sorry I've been a, a spectator, <laughs> but I'm not very social, so bear with me. Um, good night to the callers. The listeners and the host. Um, I started doing yoga about six months ago because I've been listening to you guys and I thought I would try it. And you said you were a very heavy set person, and I'm I'm I was about like maybe 220 pounds, so I started doing yoga. And but before that, I was already eating a little healthier because I had a heart attack at an early age, about 27, and I'm like about 32 now, so. I started doing the yoga, and I'm eating, mm, I would say vegan, but not not completely. Sometimes I, I eat fish. I'm trying to cut that out, but, you know, we're still victims. I live in a food desert in Brooklyn. So the yoga's been going well, and I wanted to call in, and hopefully if anybody's listening and they haven't tried it yet, I think every victim of white supremacy needs to practice yoga. I think it's a, it's a practice that we should have been taught as children from an early age, and it probably would have gave us a lot of reflection or gave us a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It would have gave us perspective so we could have a little reflection in our lives because that's what I get from doing yoga. It gives me a little peace. It makes me have a little quiet time in my head where I could, I could decipher and understand things that are going on around me a little better. So anybody that's not trying the yoga, I think they should try it and try to eat healthy, get some rest, and read. Read a lot. The first, um, oh, I got five minutes, right? Okay. The first time I, I got into this information, I, I got introduced to it by Francis Trust Wilson, Dr. Francis Trust Wilson, the grandchester. And, um, and Neely Fuller after that. So I think reading is very important and try to cut off the TV. It's a hassle. It's hard. So we've been like conditioned to watch TV and to be entertained all the time. So that's all I wanted to say. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. 
Bravo. So glad to hear from a first-time uh, caller not being a spectator on this Saturday, August 31. Uh, and then I get a double whammy, excuse the metaphor, doing the yoga. Love it. Uh, if I can ask, uh, what what specific type of yoga are you doing? Well, <laughs> it was pretty difficult to... I don't, I don't really know the names like that, to be honest with you, but I don't know if you watch YouTube, if you're familiar with, um, I don't want to give, <laughs> give her a shout out because she's white, but um, I, I watch, uh, 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 what's that girl's name? Um, I can't remember her name right now, but it's, it's, it's with a V, but she basically does everything and I'm just like learning everything right now. I don't know the names. I'm not going to be honest, but yeah. Honesty is appreciated. That's how we will solve this problem, getting to the truth of things. Uh, awesome, awesome. Uh, experiment, learn. We are all still learning. Um, that is spectacular. I'm glad to hear that you've been trying it out and it has been uh, beneficial for you. Uh, I think it can be beneficial for a lot of people. I hear from a lot of uh, whites that yoga uh, helped them uh, deal with stress, deal with anxiety, uh, feel better about the eating disorders, like heal from injuries, like just all kinds of really uh, transformative in a healing manner, uh, transformative healing uh, from yoga and just helping them uh, function better on a daily basis. So I absolutely agree. And that is why I'm an instructor, Cow's Yoga Retreat, uh, and trying to teach and encourage more uh, Black people to do yoga. I think it can help solve this for way better than football. Don't think you'll get any brain damage from Excuse me. Do Yes, sir. Can I ask a question? Yes, sir. I wanted to ask you a question about um sometimes when I'm um what's that called? When I when I when I you know when you um basically when I lower my head and I when I when I what's that, what's that called? I can't remember. But basically when you when you hold the floor and you have your head down, you know when you hold your two elbows and like you're like going from side to side and you try to like go up slowly. And it's like um, it's, it's sun salutation, I think it's called. The chaturangas? Is that what you're talking about? Chaturanga, yes. There, mm -hmm. there we go. When I'm doing that, sometimes I feel like, like I'm going to faint. What is that? Wow. Is it heated yoga? Is it in a hot environment or? No, in the house. Oh, okay. Uh, I know sometimes if you're doing the jump back, uh, you know, if you are pretty vigorous, I don't know if you've worked up a sweat at that point, uh, but anytime you're moving rapidly, uh, that that can make you feel a little uh, lightheaded. Like if you're going from a standing posture to a forward fold, or if you're doing the jump back to the chaturangas, you can feel a little lightheaded. Um, I would stop. That's what I would encourage uh, students. Uh, I think uh, instructors that are concerned about safety, uh, would say that, uh, that to maybe stop. Uh, they say if you feel lightheaded or are losing your breath to go ahead and stop uh, anyway. Um, but it could just be if you're moving rapidly uh, that, you know, it's a head rush and uh, you just get a little lightheaded. I know that can't happen sometimes. I don't think it's a big deal if that's what it is. Uh, but, you know, if You know it's... the final pose? I'm, I'm sorry. You all, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, you know the final pose um, when you lay down? So I was in the final pose mm -hmm. and I was trying the breathing exercise where you do like um, four seconds and you hold it, you hold your breath for two seconds and then you let it out for four seconds. And I started feeling, I started feeling like a little lightheaded, like I was doing a forward fold, but it felt good. 
Yeah. So I think it was maybe just my breathing, and I'm not used to it going that deep into like my diaphragm or something. It could be. It could be uh, with the breathing exercise. I mean, you're on the floor, so nothing dangerous yeah. uh, would happen. No fainting yeah. uh, danger or anything. Uh, but it could be with the holding your breath. Uh, I think sometimes if you're doing a really big inhale, uh, sometimes that that can be a bit, uh, especially if you're first getting used to it. If you just started out and, and you're still learning uh, with that, that can sometimes be a bit. Uh, but this doesn't sound like a major medical uh, emergency. Just be mindful if it's a head rush while you're doing the standing postures or whatever. I'd say maybe take a knee, make sure you're gathered, make sure you're, you know, feeling okay, and then keep going if you, as long as you're feeling okay. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Much obliged. More yoga. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in, if we uh, heard both of you, uh, we'll nab Irie first and then get Thomas in New York. Thank you. Um, thank you for yielding, Thomas. Um, I got quite a few things to say, but I'm going to make sure I'm within five minutes. Um, you mentioned something about or asking people if they have, like, ring devices in their homes. Um, I listened to a, uh, a radio show or a podcast called um, Le Show, and the um, host is Harry Shear. And he mentioned a while back how someone in Australia was able to look in the entire home of someone in America because uh, the information was being transmitted um, to the wrong person um, that was using the same device. And what I wanted to say about that was anything that's connected to the whatever this expanse is called that involves the Internet and wireless communication, um, all of it is truly to condition and to monitor us. Um, there was another radio show called The Higher Side Chat, and this was uh, last year. The lady mentioned that the reason why, in her opinion, and she's a white lady, um, she, she believes the reason why uh, there was so much um, push or should I say um, emphasis on people getting all these access and monitoring devices is because they need to monitor the inside of our homes better. And what better way to do that than to, um, she was saying, push open floor plans, um, emphasize uh, uh, stainless steel as being the best option, like for your kitchen appliances, you know, and then if you have an open floor plan, you no longer have a kitchen and a dining room. You have a grand room, which basically allows uh, a whole floor possibly to be viewed by your wireless devices, which includes your television now, um, et cetera. Um, so there's that. And then also there was a report out that Apple instructed employees to listen to the voice commands um, given to Siri and that employees heard a, a, a range of things, such as people having intercourse to people doing drug deals. So if you have something to say and you don't want it to be heard, um, I've heard rumors that you need to power your phone down and put it in the freezer. Um, again, because all this stuff is to monitor and to condition us. They need us to think a certain way. They need to make sure we think in that way. If we get out of uh, you know, if we do something that is not in alignment with the expansion or maintenance of racism and white supremacy, 
They're going to be alerted to it somehow, some way, because we're self-reporting with these devices. As far as the thing said by um, darker black women, that really um, resonated with me because my aunt, God rest her soul, she's been gone two years. She was a severe victim of racism. She was a dark-skinned woman, and she was naturally heavyset that was her body structure. But she was athletic. She was in great shape during her life until maybe the last um, maybe 10 years or so of her life. And I do blame that in part on racial dislocation confusion because of Hurricane Katrina. She was not able to find uh, consistent employment when she um, became a resident of Texas. The employment she got was uh, was uh, steps above minimum wage. Her husband had a a decent job, but it was expensive for them to live in Texas, so food choices weren't being made, and I'm sure she would have rather make, and after a while, that took, took a toll on her health. And she also expressed to me that the highest salary or pay per hour she ever received as a black woman with a master's degree was about um, $12 an hour, and i I literally cried where I sat when she told me that because I am considered not light skin. I guess it would be in the middle, and I knew that the reason why I was able to do better than her was because of my size and my skin color. So a lot of these darker black women, they're victims of that. They're victims of environmental contaminants that have been purposely put out that interrupt thyroid function and make people gain weight, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as far as Jay-Z being a sellout, I don't think any victim of racism can be a sellout, being that we were captured and sold into captivity by whomever those people were. We don't have any, um, we're, we're not a nation within a nation, so we can't sell out. We're victims of racism, and every victim of racism has something that they're willing to do to maintain or expand the system of racism, white supremacy, because as of now, that's the only system we've got. Um, and I also um, want to say that, um, like Imhan D.C. comes on and he mentions about white people like not liking the sun, I don't think they like anything in nature, because I've been hearing so many reports about um forest burning, forests that were considered uh, uh, off-limits to drilling. They're now uh, open and available to corporations to go and basically further the, 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 the defacement of the planet. And I am wondering if they're kind of doing the reverse terraforming, which I guess is a metaphor, but it basically means like making a place or a planet Earth-like, I think they're in a process of reversing it where there's nothing natural on this planet while they make their plans to go over and terraform Mars because that's going to be their ideal place to be after a while if they get there and God forbid. And the last thing I want to share is, and this is um, a, a compensatory announcement, I suppose, if you're an artist of any sort, I want to um, encourage you to look uh, through your state um, on your online with the state, uh, the agency that handles um, like arts and education, and see if there are grants available. I was able to find a grant that will uh, basically allow me to finish um, a variety of art projects, including teaching non-white girls um, through art 
and also literature have to be more codified in a way, you know, that, you know, isn't obvious, but I didn't have the money to do it on my own, and I'm pretty good at writing, so now I'll be able to get the money to do so and help in the, in the system of racism, white supremacy, and yes, I will join any, everyone else and say that every day because I'm, I am fatigued, and I am greatly pained, and I'm sure all of you are, are too. Um, thank you, and I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, Thomas is in New York. Good evening. Good evening to all the callers. Discuss. Um, you mentioned um, Popeye's. Um, the Popeye's chicken sandwich um, started the craze that started from the truth um, from Chick-fil-A, saying they got better chicken sandwiches than Popeye's. And then Popeye's treated back, y'all good? And I guess in a black voice, like the lady in the commercial, and that started the whole craze uh, all around the country. Um, and KFC had lines around the corner in Atlanta for Beyond Fried Chicken, uh, a plant-based chicken nugget and popcorn chicken. Um, and just keep in mind, Beyond Meat, they're not based out of um, – um, like a, a farming place, they're based out of Silicon Valley. Um, so, is there plant-based chicken? Is it based off of vegetable, or is it um, made in a plant? You know, you don't know. Um, but either way, um, black people have spoken, and they said it's better than fried chicken. So, expect to see this in KFCs everywhere soon. Um, Amazon Ring and predictive policing together. Um, you know, I've seen this coming. Uh, Ring is owned by Amazon. Amazon uh, makes one of the most advanced facial recognition technologies, uh, probably the most advanced because they have such a large database. Um, Amazon's largest customers of facial recognition technology are municipalities, uh, including the municipality of Orlando, Florida. Uh, which happens to be the third most visited city in the country. So it's just building this database. It's getting people from all around the world. It's tracking them, um, you know, and um, they have the largest cloud um, service, Amazon. Um, so um, they provide cloud web services um, for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, and all other um, things that people use and upload their pictures to. Um, anything you do or say on any of those sites or any sites they provide web services for, essentially they have the ability to see it. I mean, you're, you're storing it on their cloud. So they get, um, they have databases of faces and algorithms that link it right back up to the social media site and essentially um, can match that to the IP address to your phone or your computer and um, lead the police right to your house um, with, with no problem. Um, and that's coming eventually. It's probably happening, but eventually it'll come out that that's what they're doing. Um, Canada immigration, I agree that whites had a freedom of speech. My opinion, they should be able to paint all the white racist propaganda up all around that they want to. Um, if you go to Times Square, you'll see more signs, billboards, logos lit up with neon lights, bright. And you won't see no outright racist propaganda, and that's 
white deception right there because we know how these people are. How How is it that we don't see it? I, I would rather see it. Um, so um, kudos to Canada. Um, yoga in school. Um, it could be a constructive, I think maybe just as constructive as um, organized sports in school because it's done in a group setting. And, um, you know, uh, maybe they need to make yoga scholarships for college or something. But I don't know if I would want white instructors um, in a school situation. It, it just seems like uh, a perfect place for white sexual degeneracy to be practiced, um, especially with the way that, you know, people dress doing yoga. Um you know, I don't know if I would let my kids meditate around these white people. You know, who knows what they're thinking of, you know, got their hands in their pants or something. Um, um, now, white people got Disney World. They got Vegas. They got Hollywood, Broadway. And black people got Emmett Till tours, you know, civil rights tours. You know, I don't get it. I mean... I just said they got facial recognition technology. Other biometrics are about to unleash on us, and we want to go on civil rights tour. You know, they got they have made every area where black people live an opportunity zone, uh, which is going to be massive gentrification. Um, Look up the opportunity zones. Trump passed the law. Um, White people actually get tax breaks for investing and getting you out of your neighborhood. And we're going on Emmett Till tours. Like, it's like we're going backwards. Uh, I think we need to move forward, start dealing with what's in front of us instead of staying in the past. Um, uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I must say, um, it's a song that um, victim Jay-Z said had made um, way back in the day, um, probably his second or third album. He's about, you know, 15, 16 albums in. Um, Tour, I Must Love You. Uh, or You Must Love Me, one or the other. And in the first verse, he sells his mother crack. Second verse, he shoots his best friend over a piece of jewelry. And in the third verse, he straps drugs on his girlfriend knowing she's going to get caught. She gets on the plane. Um, and from what I've been told, these are true stories. So um, I'm, I use the word sellout um, in VGQ, um, but I have a definition for it So uh, in my code. And um, the sellout is a black person who is an accomplice and helping further, and helping whites further the practice of white supremacy against other blacks. I'll stop right there. Oh, you got 30 seconds. Anything else? Or if you want to finish that one? I had more than 30. It probably would have took more than 30 seconds for me to finish what I was saying, so I'll, I'll just stop right there. Oh, okay. We should have ample time, so we'll have more than 30 seconds where you can resume. Uh, other folks that Hello. we Gus, may I ask them a question? 
Can you wait until we get the folks that we missed? We should have time. Is that is that oh, absolutely all righty? Yeah. Awesome. So we'll have a question, and then Thomas in New York can conclude. Uh, other folks that we missed totally. If you have a hand up, and we've not heard you, proceed. I'm in a noisy environment, y'all. Hold on. Happens to the best of us. Lots of noise contamination in the system of white supremacy. The grandsister, Dr. Welsing, she reported uh, about that on a regular basis, the noise contamination that she had to deal with. Right there, noise contamination. Let's see, while we're waiting, uh, we're other folks that we missed totally have uh, comments, questions that they wanted to share. May I be heard? Uh, greetings, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I just had just uh, a few things that I noticed in the audio segment. Uh, the first was I noticed it was a a metaphor um, used, I think that was the segment about the so-called dude wall or something, or uh, I guess it was about hanging up pictures or whatever. That was interesting. They did use the word hang. Uh, I think that was in relation or um, in regards to a black person, I think, a uh, picture on the wall, and they uh, always hang together or something. Uh, I don't know exactly you know, the context that was uh, mentioned in. And uh, I just had one other one I wanted to mention where I think it was the apology, uh, weeping white woman, where I think the black male mentioned a, an analogy about it's like a doctor with a scalpel, I believe. I don't know if anybody heard that. And uh, either a nurse or something, and I guess he compared it to uh, racism maybe or I'm not sure what the direct uh, comparison was about, but I noticed those uh, comparisons being used. Um, and that's all I have for now. Thanks for allowing me to share. Uh, Vivian Thomas, uh, that's who they were talking about in that segment on the uh, the dude wall. Uh, Vivian Thomas, uh, this is a black male. Uh, he's uh, credited with uh, coming up with uh, new instruments for to make heart surgery possible. Uh, he's the one they commissioned a portrait uh, so that he and his uh, fellow white suspected racist surgeon could continue to hang together. And I thought the use uh, of the word hang there uh, was important. We had just uh, in the same audio heard about Emmett Till. I also thought that was significant. Bob, but Vivian Thomas, if folks saw uh, Yasin Bey, formerly known as Most Deaf, uh, they did a movie where he played Vivian Thomas. Um, is it What the Lord Made? I'm taking a guess. Might be wrong. Uh, but they did make a film. Uh, it came out not too long. I think it's an HBO film or something of that nature. I'll check it out and uh, share as we proceed. Uh, oh, Something the Lord Made. I was right there. Something the Lord Made. That's the name. Uh, let's see. Other folks uh, that we missed totally, if you have uh, comments to share, line should be open. Proceed.
Okay, so it's not noisy anymore. Hi, everyone. It's Monique. Um, caller from the 712. I'm sorry. Caller from the 712. And I just wanted to comment on yoga. Yoga being a very calming, you know, way to calm yourself and you get to stretch and do all of that. The place where I'm at in Iowa, the city that I'm in, they like yoga here too, and it's with mostly um, it was it's with mostly white people. And what they did was bring out yoga, but you're supposed to bring your beer to drink while you're doing the yoga. So it's yoga and beer, and that made me think of Gus and always talking about yoga and you know leave it up to white people to include alcohol with a calming type of, you know, calm down, you get centered, and then they decided to include beer with it. So I just wanted to let y'all know that's that's what goes on where I live in, in my part of the world of, uh, of racism. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, they do have that here as well. Uh, I have not participated, and they obviously have a lot of studios uh, in Seattle that are just the regular, you come do yoga, there's no drinks, no alcoholic drinks anyway. Um, but they do have that. They have yoga uh, in breweries here. Uh, I do know that that exists. Uh, I also know that they have uh, like parties where there will be a DJ uh, and you do the do- uh, yoga while the DJ is playing and then you have drinks and all that you know, as soon as you get your mats rolled up off the floor, uh, apparently, uh, and the DJ just continues playing like they have lots of that, uh, in addition to the cat yoga and yeah, all the, all the things that you can think of debauchery. Uh, let's see, uh, other folks that we missed totally number again, six, zero, five, three, one, three, five, one, six, four, the code five, six, four, nine, four, three, pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh folks we missed totally uh if you have commentary proceed may i be heard yes sir uh greetings everybody um hope everybody's having a constructive evening um i want to ask a question related to jv and actually um and it relates to something I was going through earlier. Other than invoking DGQ, do um, you or listeners have a codified suggestion response besides um, using Mr. Fuller's um, response to criticism, criticism of um, victims? I'll meet my last. Uh, try to minimize. That's my code is to try to minimize. Uh, the amount of criticizing uh, other victims of racism, white supremacy, uh, in my code, and even adding on to that, if it's time to do some criticizing of victims, and apparently since the system of white supremacy has been here for a long time, there might be a lot of criticism to dole out. The victim that you know the most detail to offer the most accurate and detailed critique about is yourself. So before anybody gets up to talk about the system of racism still exists because insert name a victim is doing x y and z oh buddy you can talk a lot about yourself if we all invested that amount of self-critique time and what we're not doing to get this problem solved immediately 
wow, we could make some progress. But I just don't see any. Uh, I have not seen any, any, and I mean any, not one iota of constructive value in we're going to sit around for the next 30 minutes and talk about what a coon and a sellout Jay-Z is or anybody else. You can insert that Gus T. Renegade, whoever you think, you know, coon of the week is, coon of the year. I have heard and seen that uh, almost my entire time on the planet. It does not amount to anything of constructive value. We better off going out and playing football than getting brain damage. Thank you. For sure. Other folks, did we miss anybody? Other folks who have a hand up that we missed totally? Grant, we have about 30 minutes. So if you are listening in and have a thought, uh, you should press star six one. Do not wait until the last five minutes. Uh, let's see. Uh, so there was question and Thomas in New York was going to finish. I guess we'll let Thomas in New York finish. Maybe that'll answer the question. And then if it doesn't, We'll go to 702 caller and she can get her 712. She can get her question in. Uh, Thomas, did you want to finish? Um, well, it, you had posed the question at the beginning of the show. I was just responding to the question. I wasn't trying to single out Mr. Jay-Z uh, in any way. Like I said, he's a victim. Um, but um, I don't use or um, symbol or anything like that to describe it, but that's mean call. But like I said, I define a sellout as a black person who's an accomplice in helping white people further the practice of white supremacy against blacks. Now, we're all complicit by default because we're in the system, um, but a few of us are accomplices. Um, and um, I include people in tragic arrangements to also be those in the compass to white people. Um, and that's my code. I can't treat all black people the same way. I kind of get a feeling for how they are, and that's how I have to treat them. Um, and that's, like I said, that's me. Um, now, as far as why I would say that about Jay-Z, it is um, he sold out his black business partners won. They had a black-owned record label, Clothing Line, um, other ventures, a film company. Um, and they got nothing, and he went away with everything and got a deal to be in closer with white people, um, became president of Def Jam, other things like that. Then, um, and you can have people call in. A million black people in Brooklyn. Downtown Brooklyn, Fort Greene. He told them, trust him. He guaranteed uh, that they would have all these jobs, affordable housing, hospitals, state-of-the-art schools, if they built this arena. Um, and they put the arena there. It's provided 3,500 jobs, 500 full-time, and they're all, all the full-time are management. 70% of those are held by white people. So um, all the black people working there are part-time workers, and it's only 3,500 jobs, not 35,000. Black people didn't trust the Ratner family, the white family. I put the white people out there first, um, who Jay-Z partnered up with. Um, they refused for years to allow this white family to build this stadium. And when they got Mr. Jay-Z to come on board, he promised them if they were relocated, they would be moved back into new housing, 
at the school, hospital, all this stuff. And the second the stadium was built, the white family said, oh, we ain't building none of that. And um, he was an accomplice for them. Um, last year, Jermaine Dupree was hired by the NFL to do a concert in the park in Atlanta. And um, you can find what I'm saying about Jay-Z as far as um, the Ratner family and the stadium jobs in the Village Voice article, which was entitled Jay-Z Sold Out Brooklyn. And that's all the way from 2012. Um, Jermaine Dupree was um, hired by the NFL to put Atlanta artists, because their Super Bowl was in Atlanta, to have a big concert at the park. And Jay-Z called him up and told him, don't do it. We protest in the NFL. And um, a lot of people started um, calling Jermaine Dupree names because he was taking his concert on as well, so he stopped doing it. Um, so he told this guy, don't do something. And he turns around the next year and signs a multi-year deal to do it. Um, and lastly, um, the aesthetics of his art, of rapping, um, which a lot of black people, you know, imitated, sent a lot of people to an early grave, a long prison term, um, gave off the impression that he was rich from selling drugs. When he got rich rapping, he didn't get rich selling drugs. He wasn't no big drug dealer. But that was the aesthetics in which he put forth in his lyrics. And look where it got people. So, I mean, I think it's a track record. Uh, I would, in, in the way white people are positioning him to be speaking for us, I would definitely look at him in a side eye, um, which is why I classify him as a sellout, someone who I wouldn't pay attention to. Oh, well, grand. That's, that is what I rarely hear, uh, even though I would not want anyone called a sellout on this broadcast because I would still view that as name-calling. Uh, and I view name-calling as calling anybody any title that they did not, if Jay-Z himself didn't come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm a sellout. That's what I want to be called. That's name-calling. Calling anyone, any name, any title that they did not say, yes, that's my title. That's what I want to be called. That's it. If the choice is, I'm going to label you this way and then just not pay attention to you for a victim of racism, well, hey, if everybody did that, well, wow, we could fast forward a whole lot of problems. We don't have to sit around for five hours and talk bad about what this victim of racism uh, is doing that I do not uh, agree with. Some points of that are not logical, uh, in my view, but victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, I know for one, unless I am grossly misinformed, at no point in time was Jay-Z ever the majority owner of the Brooklyn Nets. I'm not sure how much of a quote-unquote guarantee would be worth from someone who is a minority owner in this business, but, you know, I might be misinformed. There was a question, 712, for Thomas in New York. I don't know if he answered your question in his response right there. If not, you can proceed. Oh, that was, that was me, guys. It was Irene. Oh, okay. My, my apologies. Um, no, it's all good. Um, <laughs> whoops, metaphor, but no, it's, it's fine. Um, let's see. You basically said what I was going to ask, basically, given that a sellout is a type of uh, name to be called. Would it be better just to call a person acting in that manner an accomplice? Because it not only is a, is a name, 
or you know a derogative name, it also um, is 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 metaphorical for the action. And maybe maybe it's not, but to me it comes across also metaphorical too, or symbolic instead of being direct and saying this person is an accomplice or a collaborator with racism, white supremacy. So once we say that, we can then default back to, okay, well, they're doing the thing that's best to them with their logic and their frame of reference or whatever in order to be comfortable in a system of uh, greater confinement, right? So that, that's basically what I was going to ask, but then you said it so. And then we should also defer to the code. The code said no name calling, so. Yeah, that, that was basically it. Thank you. I didn't really hear a question. Was Yeah, it just sounded like statements. Was there a question? Well, I was saying, I was saying like you, yeah, it was. I was going to ask. I, I did. I, I, I phrased it as, as a statement, but basically I was going to ask, wouldn't it be better not to call the person a sellout and just, just call them an accomplice? And then I gave the explanation for the question, you know, backing up what you were saying. So. Oh, okay. Okay. So there's the question, Thomas in New York. Can I be heard? Sure, but oh, wait a minute, I would wait a minute. Um, um, I would uh, I would use accomplice. I, I I would generally not use none of it, but the question was posed at the beginning of the show, you know, by Gus. It was sort of like you know, um, you know, this guy, you know, like um, treat him like he, you know he's just a victim, and I'm I'm saying he he's an accomplice, but the question was posed in the in the word was you sell out. So I was just answering the question. I can't even remember the direct question at this point, but I wasn't trying to name call him. Like I said, I have a definition. And in my circle of people, I generally practice counter-racism with, you know, when, when someone gets labeled a sellout, then that's just a person that we do not no longer, you know, affiliate with. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's done there, you know. Uh, to me, in my opinion, of uh, being that we're at war, if we're if the war was to start tomorrow, and you had to um, physically kill uh, people classified as white or harm them, if a black person is going to help them, then that person is a sellout. You know, you could already label those people right off the bat. You know, like I said, someone with a white spouse, they're going to have to protect their wife. So you could already see that he's going to be a collateral damage in a war type situation. So I wouldn't even affiliate with that person. Right? So he has too much to lose, Mr. Jay-Z, if white people lose. So he will definitely be an accomplice, in my opinion. Racism, white supremacy is war. Tom, uh, retired firefighter, did you have commentary, sir? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I uh, got a uh, understanding of sellout directly from Mr. Fuller uh, about uh, maybe somewhere between 20 or 25 years ago at the uh, comforts of Mr. Clark's home. <laughs> uh, I would like to remind everyone that uh, racism, white supremacy, is a 
political construct, not a scientific one. Uh, the global system of racial and white supremacy was created solely by people who identify themselves as white, which includes quote unquote races of people uh, that can also be considered to be compartments or teams of people. Uh, they created the, the whole madness. Uh, and uh, so the idea of selling out, which is a metaphor, actually, uh, is actually uh, a situation that victims of racism and white supremacy, non-white people, have to do on a daily basis at some level or degree. It depends on, sometimes it may depend on the position that they have put the non-white person in. Uh, I don't think uh, Mr. Jay-Z or any other non-white victim of racist white supremacy created their own wealth on their own. They were greatly assisted by the global system of racist white supremacy. Uh, rendering it could be taken away. Uh, and uh, I can always, unfortunately, use the example of Mr. William Cosby and where I think he is right now. Uh, and uh, hopefully what I said made some sense. <laughs> uh, and uh, when it comes to my, uh, it, 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 I, I think almost blindly we some of us as victims of racist white supremacy take on these groups uh with a sense of pride as though we had something to do with it you know uh of of identifying oneself with a quote unquote black race or or some sort of pride or that sort of thing prideful type of thing and yeah, nothing to do with it at all. Uh, and I think what I, what our ultimate objective should be is to dismantle all of this crap, all of this, all of this incorrect stuff instead of crap. Instead of all this, dismantle it and replace it with something better. That, I think that that is the logical uh, objective. Uh, unless somebody can tell me something better. And that's it. Thank you. Our resident expert, Red in Nevada, I believe, uh, is hanging out. She might just be spectating uh, for the evening. Uh, they did have the opioid settlement in Oklahoma uh, this week uh, for about a half, I think it was a little bit more than a half billion dollars uh, thought that was significant system of racism. I also thought it was important because they, uh, an important aspect of that ruling in Oklahoma, Daniel Holsquaw, was that the pharmaceutical company, Johnson & Johnson, that they were uh, deceptive, willfully deceptive uh, with regards to the addictive nature of the uh, drugs, opioids that were being prescribed. Uh, and that is standard operating procedure primary rep, uh, weapon of white supremacist deception uh, and how consistent that is where they even lie 
uh, to other whites. But I did think that was important. Didn't know if our resident expert had uh, comment uh, or maybe not uh, on or any of the other folks uh, listening in. Uh, I did just again. Maybe it's not possible. Can I comment on that? Uh, well, let me finish my my point and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 fine, go ahead. Um, yeah, the um, family, I believe they call Purdue Farm. And uh, the family, the, the Singer family, I believe, is their name. They're you know, white supremacists, a bunch of billionaires. And um, not only did they have this uh, Oxycontin, and they... Um, pretty much lied on the reports saying that how addictive it was, they turned around and um, when it was time for the patent or the drug to come up, they went to the Congress and lobbied and, and said, listen, this stuff is so bad, it's so addicting that you got to allow us to be the only people still to sell it. And they allowed them to still go on selling the drug even after uh, um you know, if you guys could go to um, YouTube, it's a it's the channel Cold Fusion. He did a this is he does little short you know things, but he pretty much broke down how you know they manipulated the government even after they knew how addictive it was to continue to sell it and make all these billions off of it. And they're the leading people in the world trying to fight the opioid problem with their money. So it's like a, a you know philanthropy. To, to stop the problem they cause. System of racism that is uh, very consistent. Uh, the, all of it, really, the deception, and then they come around claiming that they are about solving the problem that they created to begin with. Uh, let's see. Uh, double checking to make sure we are not uh, missing any folks. Again, we are last. Uh, oh, our resident expert, she did have a comment. Let's see. Uh, Red in Nevada. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I had not actually heard about that. I've been actually looking. It seems like most of the news that I've been getting recently on my phone, and also I have a comment about the whole camera thing, too, is about this supposed recession. And I don't know if anyone or the possible instance of a a supposed recession um, brought on by the president but I will be looking into that. Um, the the thing that I did want to make a comment on as far as, at least with like the cameras, I never thought about that um, because I know I have an older relative, an older relative that has, um, they just got the ring installed on their front door. And then um, I actually have a camera, inside camera, and I never thought about like it being accessed by other people because what the camera that I have does is it will, it'll just like record very briefly and I will be able to access the recording from anywhere. So um, just as long as like I have the the system and it's not really actually a system, but it's um, like where it alerts the police if somebody breaks in or something like that. I would still have to do that, but it would alert me like basically like if, you know, in the, in the sense of like a ring where you open up a door and, or a window or something like that. And it'll, it'll alert me like, okay, something is being open. Um, I thought of it as more as like uh, more of like a protective mechanism or at least in a, a, to give me an alert 
should someone decide to just, you know, kick in the door or whatever, I'll at least know. And if I'm not the one actually opening the door, of course. Um, so, but it definitely gives me um, some thought because if that's something that could be accessed by anyone and that's not something that the company who um, sold it to me um, made me aware of, then that's definitely um, alarming. Uh, actually, uh, I, I guess alarming is the maybe the right term to use. Um, I didn't get a chance to hear all the clips. I wasn't, that's what I was going to, wasn't really going to make too much of a comment. And I definitely wanted to keep, I guess, my more negative comments about the whole Jay-Z thing to myself. Um, definitely appreciate everyone's, you know, everyone else's commentary. Um, definitely DGQ. And I mean, my mind. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Nevada. Stay hydrated out in the desert. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left in the broadcast. If folks have any other final thoughts uh, that they want to make sure they include. Noise pollution. Uh, and potential terrorists, Daniel uh, Pantaleo, Daniel Holtzclaw, retired firefighter, proceed. Uh, are you still with us, retired firefighter? Did you mute your line? Uh, you want to even proceed with something? Oh, I thought that oh, was you. I had spoken. I don't know. If, oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry, got confused again. <laughs> Did that a couple times. My apologies. Imhan DC. Yes, sir. Um, yes, sir. So, uh, a long time ago, I can't remember exactly how many months ago, but I think it was Emmy who was saying um, that that she she states out loud. Um, that she can end the system of white supremacy and that it's possible to end the system of white supremacy. And I just want to say I agree. Absolutely. The system will be ended. It will be ended. It's a matter of how soon. And that's our, our choice. And um, as far as writing, I, I do a lot of writing to organize my thoughts. So even if I'm, I want to speak on this program and I want my thoughts to be organized. I'll write down the points and then I'll burn the paper because white people are looking for my writings. I, I know it. And so I, I burn the paper. I don't want anybody to have certain thoughts that I have. And, you know, I'll write very explicit thoughts or how do you say exact thoughts and then I'll burn it. Um, so uh, thank you. Just a matter of how soon replacing the system of white supremacy with justice. Just a matter of how soon. Uh, other folks? Uh, um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Before um, the show ended, I just wanted to make a statement. I think everybody should try to stay codified and um, don't put any attention or like don't invest any any energy into leaders. So, and just invest that energy into finding a better way to live for yourself. And um, I don't have one of those ring cameras, but I have like a security camera from my from my studio. And when it comes to cameras that are connected, just assume that somebody's watching all the time, whether it's your phone 
anything that's connected to the outside world is probably being monitored. And any microphone is probably being listened to. And everybody have a good night. Thank you. No secrets system of racism, white supremacy, logical way to think. Uh, other folks, comments, questions, suggestions they wanted to share. Uh, we have about five minutes. Yeah, everything. Uh, let's see. Was that caller in Florida as well? I heard Thomas in New York. Was that the caller in Florida also? Uh, yes, sir. I, uh, just one real quick thing. Uh, it was a, another part on the audio segment where there was some confusion going on, confusion going on where they were talking about the, uh, I think the billboard in Canada about the immigration. And she, the guy had, uh, asked her a question about, she said that it was ugly or something. And then he was like, well, why don't you want to take him down? <laughs> and then it's just that once again, the, the racism, how white people are able to swiftly uh, practice racism like that. She mentioned the word ugly, but said, oh, well, you know, um, it's, I don't think that it's breaking any laws or something like that. She said, you know, why don't you just keep it up? But then at the same time, you're saying that it's ugly. So uh, that, that kind of thing right there, uh, I do agree with the codification and studying uh, white people when they uh, practice racism in that manner and in all matters. Uh, and that's pretty much all I have. Thank you. Studying white people always uh, encourage even the term ugly metaphor. Uh, was that Thomas in New York as well? Oh, uh, yeah. Everything, um, everything you do on the internet or, um, on Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, any of that, it all comes from one place. And the place is the I-E-E-E. That's the name of the organization. Uh, International Engineers and Electronics, um, something like that. I-E-E-E, um, 3E. So if you do anything on the, online, they can track it. They, they create the protocols or the procedures for it to happen. When China wanted to get the internet, they had to go to Hackensack, New Jersey, and ask permission for that protocol to be developed for them to have the internet in China. Anything done anywhere in the world, they are tracking it. The internet doesn't run in satellites. It runs on wires. And the wires run under the ocean, come up on the land, and then from there it gets spouted out to different providers. So it's not something that's in the air. It's terrestrial. So they, everything done on those wires, they control. Um, they tell you that the Wi-Fi and stuff is in the air. However, it's not. It's um, under the ground, under the ocean. It's right there on the wires that's over your head. And they are tracking everything that's done now. They just came out with their last magazine for July, the IEE Spectrum. And they have now developed a helmet that they could put on your head that will put your brain on the internet. Um, they've given out a lot of money for these um, six companies to develop the best one that they can use for soldiers um, to allow them to fly drones, do all types of things. But this is in their magazine that they just put out. So um, anything done, they could track it. That's what I was trying to say. Y'all. It's all being tracked by one people. 
And that's right here in the United States. New Jersey. Uh, let's see. We have about two minutes. Uh, we have any folks, final comment, suggestion, question they can get in in roughly 120 seconds. Yes. Uh, under the global system of racist white supremacy in the people activity of entertainment uh, and also under entertainment sports, uh, non-white people, especially non-white black people in this part of the world, are constantly looking for black people as heroes, uh, things of that nature, uh, something to be prideful about. And uh, it's all controlled. Even that person, success is controlled by the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, they use it for their best interests. Uh, the term showcase, uh, which was uh, to my mind, uh, created by, uh, arranged by Mr. Fuller, uh, speaks to it very vividly. And uh, the whole concentration should be on the global system of racist white supremacy to neutralize this problem, as opposed to uh, getting uh, basically confused with uh, idolizing another non-white black person as a hero. Thank you. Bill Cosby. Uh, with that, we should be here uh, Thursday. Well, I am trying to get Mr. Beauchamp on the program, so we'll see if I can succeed uh, to discuss uh, what happened with the shooting, uh, the significance of that. Uh, we'll see if that happens Stay tuned. Either way, uh, the book club, uh, Tony Morrison, the late Tony Morrison, uh, Tar Baby will be here on Thursday. Uh, and I think the iTunes feed, uh, at least it seems like it's working. Uh, I was able to upload all the content from this week. Uh, I think last week as well. Seems like it posted uh, in its entirety. So I will get cracking as long as it's working. See if we can get everything uh, current uh, on the iTunes feed, and I'll post uh, if that's able to happen over the next few days or so. Uh, but that even that is the system of racism, white supremacy. We've had so much interference uh, for the duration of our broadcast, uh, the entire 10 years of interference, live broadcast, the archives, iTunes. Expect massive opposition. Even with all of that, Imhan DC said, I can, I will replace the system of white supremacy with justice as soon as possible. Just a matter of how soon. Much obliged to everyone participating, uh, listening in, archives, live. I uh, hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, let's preserve our brain computers. Uh, if we are going to solve this problem quickly, I think it would be best to have our brains functioning at maximum efficiency. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up each and every time we are in a vehicle, passenger, or driver, uh, just about minimizing the chance that Daniel Pantaleo will put his hands on us. Uh, if you're going to drive, definitely let's stay off the cell phone, uh, just doing little things that we can to try to stay as safe as we can in a system of terrorism. 
That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.